Welcome to the first episode of the anime podcast, but is it an S tier? We're your hosts, Klaus. And Jacqueline. And on this very first episode, we're talking about the series, The Promised Neverland. Are you excited, Klaus? I'm so excited. It's not like it's our uh, second time doing this. No, yeah, it's not like we tried recording this and then all of our technology shut down and now we're trying this again. (laughs) Yep. It's fine. First time. It's our first time. We've overcome many challenges to get here. Mm-hmm. Just like these kids. Just like these kids. Oh, man. They go through so much. Uh, but before we get into talking about the series, we're going to have a spoiler-free section where if you're not sure if you want to watch the series or if you don't want any spoilers about the series, you can stick around and listen to that. So we have our spoiler-free section that we're going to get into. And then we're going to have our first spoiler checkpoint. We will let you know when we start talking about spoilery content. Um, our first spoiler checkpoint is everything that happens in season one or the first two arcs of the manga and then we have spoiler checkpoint 1.5 which is where we talk about season two it's mostly going to be me ranting about it season two has not a lot of value to it so i don't count it as anything so 0.5 and then spoiler checkpoint two is going to be everything that happens in the manga which i think is really excellent and is you know worth having that spoiler warning there and then at the end of the episode We will review everything that we have talked about, and me and Klaus will ask the ultimate question, but is it an S tier? But before we go into that, we'll start off with our spoiler-free section and just some details about the series. So The Promised Neverland began serialization in Weekly Shonen Jump on August 1st, 2016, and was published by Shueisha. Shueisha. It is written by Kayu Shirai and illustrated by Pozuka Demizu. The manga was completed on October 2nd. 2020 in its uh, 20th volume. The anime was developed by Cloverworks and began airing in January 2019. The first season of the anime contains 12 episodes and the second season, which my co-host will elaborate on. Uh, I don't. I don't want to talk about season two, but we will. But we will. Um, so just a short synopsis of the series that doesn't give away the main things that make the story just hit from the start. Um, The Promised Neverland is about a family of orphans who live on the secluded Gracefield house with the love of their mom and caretaker, Isabella. Uh, They have good food, soft beds, and nearly complete freedom with two exceptions. They are not allowed to leave Gracefield for the outside world under any conditions. And every single day, the kids take daily exams and the main three characters, Emma, Ray, and Norman, ace those tests with perfect scores every single day. And that's all I'm going to say about the story itself for the people who haven't seen or read it yet, because it really, it's best to go in blind. This is one of those stories where it's best to go in with no information whatsoever. So let's talk about it in a spoiler-free way. Klaus, how did you hear about The Promised Neverland? How did you start getting into it? Uh, Well, at the time I was reading uh, My Hero Academia. So good. And like there was a lot of like advertisements or like comparisons of how my hero, Demon Slayer, and the Promised Neverland were like the new generation of like the big three. And they're right. So I was just like, oh yeah, it's like the most popular, most hyped. And there's definitely a reason for it. So I think I started reading it when the anime came out. How about you? I also heard a lot about it. And I think I watched Promised Neverland around the same time that I was watching Demon Slayer. I didn't have that sense of there being a new big three but I knew that the promised neverland was something that a lot of people were talking about it was all over anime twitter 
my first memories of the promised neverland is just seeing this contrast between you know these sweet innocent looking kids and lots of comments about them going through a lot of shit and being put through a lot of pain and i was like oh that sounds like something that i would like and they were right i really did like it so i'm guessing your first impressions of the story were pretty good so good that first episode oh my gosh oh my gosh did you did you start with the manga klaus I think so. I feel like I, I read the manga and then I watched the anime to see how it compared. So does the first chapter of the manga end the same way that the first episode does? Yes, it does. Yeah, so shit hits the fan. Like real quick. Right away. The stakes are high. You're taken out of this idyllic reality into this just... It's, I, I don't even know if I have the proper words to describe how jarring the transition is into like, oh, this is what the story is about. Yeah, the setup was fantastic. One of the best setups in manga. Because it's like, oh, you get the you get the circumstances, you get the characters, you get some of their traits, and then you get the conflict. It's like all in one episode or chapter. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, how are they gonna get out of this situation? Mm -hmm. And it immediately hooks you. Yeah, it's a really great setup. And you're right, they do set up the the characters, what their relationships to each other are in this really cool way and you you find yourself already rooting for them from the start i i mean i found myself rooting for them i know that you felt a little differently as the series like went on we're still in okay, the okay, section okay 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 you need to hold up okay hold up all right i'm holding up i'm shutting up on my own podcast thank you okay so, uh, okay, so another way into talking about it without spoiling it is, does the series remind you of anything? For me, it reminded me a lot of Death Note. Mm. So if you, you guys are familiar with Death Note, it's not like your typical ba battle shonen. It's more like mind games or like, how do I outsmart my opponent? Mm -hmm. And it's basically, the Promised Neverland has the same vibes as Death Note in that way. It's especially like Death Note in the sense that everybody is playing a game that nobody externally is acknowledging is even going on in the first place, which is just like 4D chess. Exactly. It's the good shit. And I'll also, for me, I would compare it to Attack on Titan, but just in one specific way. And it's that the first episode just has such a strong impact from the very beginning that you know what you're in for. It's like, the everyday reality of the characters just gets completely transformed in this way where you're like, I don't even know how you're going to handle this because the difference in power feels so strong and the gap between the main characters and this problem that they're facing just feels so impossible. Am I getting too spoily? I think so. <laughs> okay. Okay, before we move on to talking about the series, what makes this story worth it for you? How would you advertise this to somebody to get them to start watching it or reading it? Uh, just watch like the first episode, bro. Like if you're not hooked by then, then I don't think you're going to like the rest of the series. Yo, literally, if that hook doesn't get you. Yeah, but like for me, what got me into it was all of season one or like chapter one to 37. Like that whole part, that whole the whole beginning. I was just like in it. I was just like, let's go, bro. And the pace is so good. Yeah, so if all of season one or like the first arc doesn't get you, then you probably won't like the rest. Yeah. But the story is good. So I like if you like the first part, then I suggest you keep going. Agreed. Um, and I thought that it was very worth it to keep going because I watched season two knowing that it has some some executive decisions were made. And then when I went and read the manga, I was like, wow, this is doing a lot more than what season two gave. 
and I found it really worth it to keep going. And in particular, I really like this message that this story develops about hope and believing that you can change your circumstances. You don't get into it as much in the first season. You just get little hints of it. But overall, I think that what sticks with me the most from this story is this message that you can change your life. You can change the world. You just have to believe in it. Even if you can't see a way forward, you just have to keep trying and have hope and trust in the people around you and believe in what you are being told constantly is impossible. That message of hope is what makes this series so worth it for me. So if that's the kind of shit that you're into. The Promise Neverland. That's like a an unexpected, um, what's the word I'm looking for? That's an unexpected benefit of watching The Promise Neverland. Just this, the hope, the innocence, despite all of this shit. Anyway, I can't keep talking about this without actually talking about the series. So let's get into it. You have reached spoiler checkpoint number one. We're talking about season one. Uh, yeah, so why is uh, my co-host here talking so much about hope? Well, it's because... These kids are what? They are food. They're food. And the orphanage is what? Farm, bro. It's a farm. It's a farm. They got top tier farm. Free range babies. Yep. The best kind. The best kind. So in the first episode or the first chapter, all the kids are saying goodbye to one of their siblings who is being adopted and she leaves her stuffed bunny behind. So Emma and Norman go after her. And what do they find in the back of the truck that was supposed to take her away? It's her dead body. Oh my god. She's so dead. She's dead dead. Dead dead. She's looking at them with her dead eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she has this flower thing just stuck in her chest and it's absorbing the blood out of her. Which is actually relevant later on, but we'll get into that. Yeah, it does become relevant later on in this one one specific some uh, well we're let's stay right yeah. here. She's yeah, dead. Yeah. They're traumatized. They crawl underneath the truck because they hear some voices coming. And who is it? More demons. It's the demons, demons are eating the kids. It's demons. It's not just... The kids aren't just being farmed for humans, for cannibals. No. They're demons. And let me just say, first of all, these demon designs are so good consistently so good. throughout the Top whole tier. series. All the demons look slightly different. Actually, a lot of them look very different from each other. But all terrifying. Yes, all terrifying. They have lots of eyes. They have freaky masks. They have weird limbs. They're very humanoid. Stop mask shaming them. Oh my gosh. Okay. They're oh, fine. Do you do you want me to say that the human eating demons are responsible? We'll get into that. We'll get into that. Oh my gosh. Wait, don't don't come at me about the the masks. I'm just saying, man. Like I like those masks. They're terrifying, but like those aren't cool mask designs. They are cool mask designs. They're cooler than their faces, which are covered with eyes. Are you calling them ugly? Do you have a problem with me calling the demons ugly? No, I don't. Thank you. Maybe people would. Oh my gosh. I will shame these demons all I want. I, I'm contradicting myself because I actually I'm more in line with the way that Emma comes to seeing the demons. Okay, so Emma and Norman find out about the fact that their sibling is dead. So none of their siblings that get shipped out every two months are being adopted off to happy families. They're just dead before they even leave. And their mom, Isabella, is fucking in on it. Yep, she's at the trucks with the demons. 
and she has a cunning look on her face. And oh man, Isabella's character design. Oh my god, hello. Hello. I wouldn't mind being in her care, if you know what I mean. Oh my gosh. Take care of me, Isabella. Oh my gosh. Yeah, she she's a MILF. Let's go. She's I didn't say it. <laughs> you basically baited me into admitting it. Yep. Okay. There. Isabella's a MILF, okay? Confirmed. The way that she is drawn. Her face goes from being so sweet and caring and motherly towards these kids, and then she's just stone cold and conniving. Yep, she's built different. She's built different. (laughs) And she even looks strong underneath her dress. Oh my god, let's go. You know she's built, and you find out why, which we'll get into. So when Emma and Norman return to their house, they have to pretend like they didn't see anything, and everything about their life takes on a new light. They realize that all of the windows are screwed shut. Their life is just structured in this way where they're meant to feel super free and like they safe. Yes, and safe and loved, but you know, they're not allowed to leave. They realize they have no idea what the outside world looks like whatsoever. And there's this one point where they realize that Isabella can track them because she Isabella knows that somebody witnessed what happened. Because she finds the plush toy that was left behind by them. So she knows that something is up, but she doesn't know who it is. And they realize this through this really clever series of um, events where one of the kids gets lost in the woods while they're all playing tag. And then Isabella pulls out her pocket watch, looks at it, goes to find the kid who is lost, and then comes back immediately. And Norman realizes that all, that all that happened really fast, as if she knew exactly where that child was in the forest. But they also realize that whatever tracking system she has, it doesn't show her who they are, because otherwise she would have confronted them at that point. So she's doing this private investigation on the kids while also showing them, like, hey, I can track you as she like pulls out this pocket watch openly in front of them. And meanwhile, they're trying to figure out, well, what the fuck do we do? So it's basically like a cat and mouse game. And like Isabella's showing her cards, but it's not like, oh, this is my defeat. It's just, oh, look how powerful I am. You guys can't do anything against me. Even if you know the truth, I will always be one step ahead, like a couple steps ahead of you. Exactly. And she knows these kids are smart. Yes, because she raised them. She raised them. These are her kids. And again, Emma, Ray, and Norman get not just like 90% of their scores. They get perfect 100% scores every single day. Every single time. These kids are also built different. Top quality meat. Top quality meat. So once they realize that everything is fucked up, they know that they have to escape. And along with Emma and Norman, there's also Ray. They're, they're the three oldest kids there. So they're the three 12-year-olds. 12 years old, having to deal with all of this stuff. Yeah. These kids don't even know what TV is. They don't have TVs. They don't have TVs. They just have... Each other. Oh. Oh. And they realize that every single family member that has been sent away is just fucking... Dead. So dead. And it makes them realize why they never receive any letters, too. And oh, and there's also this detail where Isabella gets rid of evidence of the kids. So there there are no photos, there's no toys that or anything that belonged to the kid before. They just kind of get erased from their memory. And then they get replaced with a new kid. Mm-hmm. And the cycle just fucking continues. It continues. So how does 
Do you remember how Ray gets brought into the fold? Because Emma and Norman are the ones who witness the demons. And then somewhere along the line, they realize that Ray also knows what's going on. Well, no, they like tell Ray because they trust him. They're like, oh, we should tell Ray what's going on. But then Ray's already there, like at their meeting spot. And then he's like, I already know what's happening. Right. Like, oh my gosh, how did you, how did you know? Ha ha. And then Ray's just like, bruh, I've been doing this for, for years. Yeah, he has figured this shit out. Ray has been in the know for how long? Since he was a fetus. Since he was a fetus. Should we get into that quickly? Yeah. So Ray, the big brain, he said he had memories of when he was a fetus. Okay, sir. Sir. So he remembered the demons like right when he was born and he knew the system and he's been living with it for 12 years. He's seen his siblings get chipped off Mm -hmm. for so long, for all his life. And he started plotting when he was six to get out. And so for like, again, from age six to 12, he's been plotting how to get out, but he couldn't do it alone. And so he planted the bunny. Does, doesn't that remind you, like the planting of the bunny to set off this big chain of events, doesn't that kind of remind you of a certain peasant girl 2,000 years ago? If you're listening and you know what I'm talking about, then you know. And if you don't know... She's talking about Attack on Titan. If you've watched it and you still don't know what I'm talking about, just just keep watching it or keep reading it. It's so good. But this, is, this isn't about Attack on Titan. This is about The Promised Neverland and how Rey is my favorite. Raise your favorite. It's yeah. beginning. At the, at, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep thinking about it as this episode goes on. But okay, it might just be the black hair and the little the, the emo look. This yes, like you can only voice. see one of his eyes most of the time. It's all grown out like that. Like who is the hairdresser on in Grace Field? I would like Isabella. To know. Obviously, okay. hello. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And you know what? Of course, she gave him a nice hairstyle. But that's for later. Let's let's go back. Okay, so it's them three, and they realize that escaping with them, just them, is not possible. Because you know why? Emma wants to escape with everybody. Emma wants to save all of her siblings. So what's very interesting about this series is that all the three kids, they go, yes, we need to escape. We can't keep living like this now that we know what's going on. But they all have different ways of going about it. So Ray's plan, since he was six years old was to only leave with Emma and Norman. His only goal was to save Emma and Norman, his two best friends. But then once Emma finds out, she's like, well, no, we need everybody. All of these kids are our family. So we need to escape with all of them. And keep in mind, six of these children are so young that they sleep in Isabella's room at night. Yeah, like you have a bunch of them who's like not even five. And it's just like you expect them to escape this orphanage, like into a demon world. Yeah, like they don't even know what the outside world looks like. They know that it's going to be very difficult to escape from the compound. They know that they have trackers on them. How are they going to do it? So Emma is like the idealist. Uh, Ray is the realist. And then what is Norman's role in all this? Norman is a simp. Straight up. So he fully admits that what Ray says makes the most sense and what Emma wants is reckless. He admits that it would be easy to fool Emma and hard to fool Ray as far as what they actually do with the kids when the time comes to escape. But he still wants to go with Emma's plan. And you know what? I love what he said. He is a simp, absolutely. But I also think that it's very sweet and sentimental the way that he goes about it because he says, I want to become like her. If there are more people I could save, then I would love to do just that. Yeah, and you get this recurring theme 
in my opinion, throughout the series where Emma's influence, it like makes people like morally better where her values and her beliefs are shared with other characters and they take her her traits on. They do. Oh, that's my favorite thing about it. Emma is the core of this story in so many ways. She's the moral core and she is the reason why this story is about hope. And so to get their plans going, Ray, Norman, and Emma, they're like, we need more people in. But they're also like, who can we trust? Exactly. Because there are two 11-year-olds that live on Grace Field with them. And that's Gilda and Dawn. And when they bring them in, around this time, they realize that Isabella is learning things about their planet. Like weird things that she shouldn't know. So you know what? They realize, because they're smart-ass kids, they realize right away... There's a spy among them. I should have said among us because... because, Who's the imposter? You know, who's the imposter? Yeah, so it's just like, oh my gosh, who would betray the kids? Who knows the secret of the farm and is still on his villa They're trying to suss each other out. There's this great panel where Emma pretends to go to sleep and like Gilda walks out of the room and they're both like sussing each other out. And it's just like, oh my God, is Gilda the imposter? Mm-hmm. And she's pushing up her glasses and yeah. looking all sneaky. And there's this whole thing where Norman, he sets a trap for Gilda and Don, where he tells them the hiding place for a bunch of ropes that they have that they want to use to uh, climb over the wall at the end of the property. And wherever the ropes disappear from, that that is the one who shared that information with Isabella. But guess what happens? Who is the spy? It's Ray! Oh my god, what? Neither of the ropes disappear, but he put ropes in a third place that he told Ray about and he fell right into the trap. Or did he? So is Ray a double agent? No, man. Ray is a triple, triple agent. agent. What, do you, what does that mean? So Norman calls him out. He's like, you're the spy. You're the one that's feeding information to Isabella. And Ray is like, yep. Like, doesn't even try to deny it whatsoever. But it's fine. Because he's on their side. He is their ultimate trump card. Because all he cares about is escaping with Emma and Norman. And that's what he's been trying to do this whole time. Yeah, his goal was to escape with just Emma and Norman. And for the past six years, he's been feeding intel. Or like he's been like the watchdog for Isabella to keep an eye on the kids. And what has he also been doing? Indirectly feeding the kids to the demons. Because he knew that it was happening every time a sibling got sent out and he didn't stop it. Because in his mind, he couldn't stop it. I mean, he was six when he started putting this plan forward and when he became Isabella's spy. Like, you can only do so much when you're 12. What can you do when you're six? Exactly. And then I love how um, the speed and the pacing of this story is so good because like, we find out that Ray is the spy and Norman is like, well, I know that you're not really our enemy. And then when it comes to telling Emma, Norman is in his head like, oh, how do we tell her? And then Emma's like, oh, so what happened with the ropes? And Ray is like, oh, you're wondering about the source? It was me. Simple as that. Like the the story doesn't linger on these little reveals. Yeah, it's not like a whole drawn out thing. It's just like, here's the fact. Let's move on. Yeah. Like, this happened. It was very tense. There was suspense. And now it's solved, and we go forward to another level of of solving shit. It's really fun to just be along for the ride, especially in these early chapters. Everything is just moving so quickly. And there's this great moment after Emma finds out that Ray is the spy, 
where she realizes that he's been watching their siblings get sent away all this time. And she gives him the scariest face that you ever see Emma make. And she says, never sacrifice one of us like that again. It's one of those rare times where she's like completely serious, completely deadpan. Her eyes are scary in that moment. And then afterwards, Ray is like, damn, she was pissed. But they also know that she was holding back. She could have been more angry at him, but she also recognized how difficult it was for him to be in that position all those years. And that's what Emma is really good for. She can acknowledge how other people are feeling and still feel differently herself without drowning out the personal experience of the other person. Yeah. So as their plans are going, Isabella's making moves of her own. And so she hires a new person to help her out, Sister Crone. And Sister Crone basically is keeping watch of the kids so that Isabella has more eyes because she knows something's up. Mm -hmm. But she can't be intrusive herself because remember, they're all still trying to pretend like nothing's going on. And what I like when Sister Crone comes into things is that, again, so she is here to watch over the kids. But then also she finds out that they're plotting things relatively early on. And she's like, OK, but let's make a deal. I want to take over Isabella as a mom of this place so our interests can align. So let's work together. So you have these really interesting alliances playing out throughout. So you have the main three kids who all want to escape. And then you have Norman being like, okay, Emma, everybody's going to escape. While he's telling Ray, okay, we're just going to save ourselves. And then you have Ray and Isabella having their spy like intel relationship. And then we have Crone in here who is working for Isabella, but then also feeding useful information to the kids. So there's just so much going on here. And everybody in this world is really smart. And why are they all so smart? Because they're also orphans. Isabella and Sister Crone, they were on farms too. But how did they survive? They became moms they or became sisters. Moms. So we learn through a bunch of well-placed flashbacks that the farm system has been going on for a very, very long time. This is not something new. This is how uh, Isabella and Crone were both raised. And the only way that they escaped without getting killed is they were just really, really fucking smart. So you literally have some of the smartest people in this universe perpetuating the cycle. I was going to say battling each other mentally, but they are also perpetuating the cycle that broke them down. Like poor Isabella, we get a flashback where she's sitting on top of the wall that surrounds the orphanage. And then the mom comes out and then she just looks defeated. Isabella just looks defeated because she knows. Because the thing about the escape. wall, and this really gets the kids for a while too, is that on the other side is just a cliff that goes so far down. And there is land on the other side, but you can't just jump to it normally. So we learned that Isabella once had dreams of escaping the farm. She was in the same position as the kids, but now that she's given up on them, she has realized that the only way for her to survive and live a good life is to live in this system, is to become, is to become a mom. And that is the earliest example i think of this reoccurring message or philosophy through this story which is the tension between saving yourself and living a comfortable life and saving everybody and struggling to do so yeah so like what's the right option it depends on the situation depends on the person and when you have these institutions and these systems that have been in place for so long how do you fight that 
that's another one of the big messages of this show. Like, how do you fight this? And Isabella's strategy was, I'm not going to fight. I'm going to live in it and I'm going to raise these kids and I'm going to be as happy as I can while I'm here. And then she tries to get Emma to do the same thing. Because you know what happens when they're trying to escape? Oh, Isabella's like, my uh-uh, God, not happening. These today. chapters where Isabella just fucks everything up. Oh, so in a very short period of time, a lot of stuff happens. She's like, all right, kids, I got some news for you. Norman, you're getting, oh, sorry, what were you going to say? I was going to say enough of these games. Oh, Crone oh is dead. How was Crone dead? Yo, I, I, I got her killed. I got her. Oh, yeah. I got Crone killed. Norman, mm-hmm. you're about to go up for adoption. Ray, I don't need you as a spy anymore. You're also going to get shipped out soon. Haha. And Emma, I'm going to break your leg. She was like, oh, you thought that you could just try to gather your shit up and escape tonight? No. Emma's leg is broken. So you're not going anywhere because you can't travel with a broken leg like that. And you know what? She brought bandages with her. That's how you know that she was ready to do that from the start. Isabella is so diabolical. The way that she can be like... So good. So evil. No problem at all with breaking this kid's leg. But at the same time, she's like, I love you all so much. I just want what's best for you. So you need to stop struggling. And just do what I say. Don't give me any problems. Go to your death. Haven't I given you a good life here? And the thing is, she breaks it in like a good spot to break. It's just like, Emma, this is going to heal in one to two months. Like, I got this covered. Like, in in one to two months, Ray's going to be shipped out. Like, we got this. It's no big. You won't even feel it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I forgot about that. So just in that, in the way that she breaks her leg, there's this incredible cold heartedness, but also this motherliness to her. It's a really fucked up contradiction. And when she tells Ray that she doesn't have any use for him and she's like, please forgive me for what I'm about to do. She's just trying to save herself and make things as easy as possible on everybody because she knows that she is expendable and that if any of these kids escape, she will get her ass kicked or more specifically, she will get her ass. Mm, no. Nope. Yep. <laughs> I'll be there for that. <laughs> she will get her brain eaten, which is more accurate. Her whole body. Um, And okay, let's just talk about the fact that she straight up says when she tells Ray that he's not going to be her spy anymore, she says, I no longer have any use for you. Ma'am, that is your son. Oh man, that reveal. What do you mean Ray is her son? Well, to become a mom, she needed to get pregnant. And the kid that she got pregnant with was Ray, aka the guy who had memories when he was a fetus, aka Ray knew that Isabella was his mom. And then how did Isabella find out? Well, when she was young, she had a friend who sang this tune at the farm that they were both at. And then when she was pregnant, she was singing the tune to her baby. And then when Ray was like a little kid, he started singing the tune when Isabella was the mom of the farm. And then she's like, Ray, where did you learn this tune? And then he gives her a knowing smile. And then she's absolutely Mm -hmm. horrified. Complete horror and just devastation in her face. Because, I mean, as much as she claims to love these kids, and I do believe that she was able to provide a happy life for these kids and at least pretend that she was living a happy life for these kids. She still had to do it at a bit of an emotional distance, knowing that they're all going to die. But like, when she realized that was her son, you can tell that really rocks her. So let's shift gears a little bit. There's a little bit of a a time skip here because that night or like the next night, uh, Norman gets shipped out. And so Ray and Emma basically lose hope for the next 
or for the next one to two months. Or do Emma's, they? Until Emma's recovered. But then you realize, oh, no, they've been plotting. Mm-hmm. They've been plotting this whole time. And what I love about this is that we see that the kids on this farm are trustworthy. The kids are smart. They've been playing tag in these specific ways to make sure that everybody can run away properly in groups. They have the faster kids paired with the other fast kids so that the kids who are slower can all be in one group and then the faster kids can divert attention away from them. They've been training for this escape the whole time. Like all of these kids are just trustworthy and they do manage to escape with most of them. They manage to escape with everybody. Is it five and over? Yeah. So they leave behind literally the best boy of the whole series. Best oh my god, boy. Phil. Let's talk about Phil for a little bit here. So Phil was the was reading a book one day, because you know, his kid's literate. And uh, he figured out that there was Morse code in their books. And that's how we found out that this was a farm. Because the author of the book was was like sending like SOS messages basically to the kids saying like, oh, this is a farm, like you're going to be eaten, please leave or like escape. And so that's how they, they figured out that there was a there's like a helper outside of the farm. Mm-hmm. So even though Phil is a small boy and he, along with the other kids, four and under, can't make it with them, he's still smart enough to be like, hey, there's some something going on here. So he makes this really valuable contribution. And then Phil becomes the example of all the children. Like every time they think back to the kids, they're not just like, oh, I miss my whole family. It's always like Phil. Yeah, we gotta we miss save Phil. Phil. We're going back for Phil. And you know what? He really is the best boy. So he deserves it. Yeah, and there's a great exchange at the end after the, the kids actually escape where Isabella like gives up and she's just like, yeah, like I hope for them the best because they did what I couldn't. And so at the end, she's not like bitter about them, but she's just like, I'm happy they were able to escape because I actually did love these kids. Yeah, I love Isabella as a character so much. She's just doing what she needs to do, you know? And um, so that's where season one ends, basically. Um, And I just want to point out one little moment that happens between the kids where Norman is saying like the only chance that I that we have to make this work is I need to get shipped and you guys need to do this plan yourself. And there's this really funny moment where they're like, okay, but what if you escape and you hide? And then um, because Emma's bone is broken, she can't get sent off, sent off. But then what if Ray just breaks his arm? <laughs> and that way he can't get shipped off either. And then we're all safe. And then in two months of Norman hiding, um, we'll just all go together. Like that is passed off as this very sweet moment between these kids and this funny moment where they're all just being kind of silly but kind of serious at the same time. I think Ray might have actually broken his arm if you like. If yeah, if they were like, yeah, Ray, go for it. He'd be like, okay, I'm go. I'm this is it's already broken. You didn't even need to say anything. Yeah, right. Like he's a little fucked. Uh, and there's this point earlier on where Norman and Ray acknowledge that if they need to, they will kill a bitch. Yeah, they will kill one of the adults. But they're also the smartest mm-hmm. people in the verse. Yeah. They're like, we will protect Emma's innocence and the uh, the other children's innocence. But we know that we might have to kill somebody and we'll do it. And maybe that makes us fucked up. But to me, that speaks to how to make all of this happen. Everybody needs to play different roles. And the three kids are all balanced out in these different ways. They have different traits and they all ultimately contribute to the things that are necessary uh, to make things happen. Yeah, the dynamic between the three is amazing. I agree. It really is. Okay, so that was season one. (sighs) 
Now let's talk about season two. I didn't watch it for obvious reasons, but you go ahead. Yeah, so I didn't know that there was so much shit going on with it when I started watching it. Um, so the disappointment that I had started to feel was valid. So season two is the way that it is because the animation studio was only given one season to finish the whole rest of the manga. The first part of the series is, that was adapted was 37 chapters. So they basically had 12 episodes to adapt 151 chapters. Or 100, around 150, 140. Yeah. Yes. They were asked to do way more than was possible. And I don't know why that was the case. And it was also being made during COVID. So there were a lot of production delays and difficulties that a lot of anime that has been released recently has experienced. So this this is what happens in season two. All right. So the kids, they escape. They make it across on a little hang glide. They're not hang glide. Zip line situation. Uh, and then the kids are running through the forest at the beginning of season two and they meet Musica and Sonju who are these like vegan demons they just don't eat humans and they agree to help okay, them whoa, find whoa, whoa, the human whoa. world they're not vegans they still eat animals here you call an animals vegetables bro like, okay they're 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 okay they're like they human. just don't eat they're humans vegans. that doesn't mean they're vegan like okay God. okay since when was a okay. chicken i couldn't like find a vegetable okay Okay, I don't. I didn't know how else to word it. Okay, yeah, they don't eat humans. Not, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say they're not cannibals, they but don't they're eat not humans. humans either. So yeah, they don't eat humans. No, but they still they eat just, meat. So yeah, they're not. They vegan. don't eat humans. Yes, yeah. They still hunt for animals. They just, they just don't eat humans, and it's for religious purposes. And then the kids make it to Shelter Bo Six Thirty Two, which was a place that was they were led to by William Minerva through this pen thing. And guess what? There's nobody in the shelter, which. If you know, you know. There's nobody in the shelter when they arrive. Klaus is making yeah, that's some faces weird, right now. There's because there's someone yep. in the shelter. And then, yeah, they just cut out a whole thing. Yes, they did. They did. But that's for spoiler checkpoint number two. Okay, hold on. So then they just get randomly chased out of the shelter. Not even by the people who chase them out of the shelter in the manga. And then suddenly they're just living in this temple. There's a time skip and they're just living in this temple. Uh, and you'll know the one, Klaus. What? It's it's the very important one, but they're just living there. They've just been there? For, for no reason. They've just been there. They've just been there. Okay. For a few months or something? I don't know. And they get chased through a demon town while they're in disguise in like demons. So yeah, there's this whole demon town thing happening uh, that they live nearby. And they get chased through the town and they get cornered. But then guess who it is that's been chasing them? It's Norman. Excuse he was just chasing them through the what? town with his group of people from Lambda. So Norman got shipped off to Lambda, which was a special testing facility for humans where they got put under a bunch of torture and experiments. So Norman rolls up with his squad and he's like, yeah, so I have a plan. My master plan is I want to kill all the demons. And I was like, no, but I feel bad. I don't want to kill all the demons. They're just, they're just, they're people too, but they're demons. And I wasn't buying it at that time. But you know, that's, I was just like, all right, Emma, fine. Do your thing. And then we meet Norman's squad of the people who escaped from Lambda. And you know, Klaus, there are a lot more characters that come in before this. But we meet the squad from Lambda. And even though we're meeting less characters than we do in the manga, the characters feel less important. Because there's less characters being introduced, there should be more focus on them. But there still isn't. So it just feels like, why are you here? Why are you taking up space? There's already so little space to do anything. So 
Like, why? Um, and then Emma has to track down Musica for her magic blood that stops demons from degenerating because, you know, demons degenerate if they don't eat humans and they become like wild beast things. And Norman is like, okay, well, I'll wait for you. You go find her and then maybe we won't have to do my master plan of killing all the demons. But then he does it anyway. In the anime, his master plan is just turning this random demon town all into wild beasts like that's it that's the whole thing so he goes ahead with his plan and then we're meant to feel bad about this demon grandpa and this demon child and then there's this whole moment where the grandfather demon calls for the grandchild demon in front of norman and guess what the demon child's name is emma no way yeah oh my it's God. a bit on the nose what huh are these anime people doing i know and then everybody heads back to Grace Field because Norman is like, oh, okay, fine, we'll do, we'll do it another way, I guess. I'm a simp for you. I love you. Not Emma the human, Emma the demon. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, yeah, he doesn't love a literal He just likes child. the name Emma. He's not in love with Emma the person. He just likes Emma the name. It just has a ring to it. Whatever that attraction is i don't know there's probably a name to attracted to names it's it's just him being like oh but the humans or the demons are people too whatever so that happens and then they have to go back to grace field because they get told that phil and the other kids are going to be shipped out early but it's a trap and then there's this cliffhanger in one of the episodes where vincent one of the new characters that gets brought back in along with norman there's this thing where he's a traitor but then in the next episode it's literally like no he's not a traitor just kidding you already didn't care about it because you didn't care about him but then he's like haha fuck you guys i would never be a traitor because i hate all of you people and you're not gonna get me and we're gonna outsmart you and then there's this thing with hot air balloons which i don't really know and then there's this whole showdown with peter rotry who is the head of the he's the head of the family who is managing all the stuff happening between the demons and the humans and he brings in all the moms to be like all right you're surrounded kids and then the moms are just like jk we hate you we hate you man it's because you're a man they're like fuck you dude we're moms, we're powerful. And, you know, Isabella is leading the whole thing. And, like, that moment is, like, like, it's still good in the anime, but there's just nothing, none of the bits from the manga that actually make it to the anime feel earned whatsoever. And then Emma tries to be like, no, but Ratri, you could have been one of us too. Like, live with us. And then he slits his throat because he's like, no, I would rather die than admit that I was wrong about sending all these children to their deaths. And then we learn about how uh, William Minerva, who helped the kids, was the previous head of the Ratri clan. And the kids and the moms get to go to the human world. Isabella makes it to the human world with them. But then some of the other kids stay behind, like Emma and the main kids. They're like, no, but we need to fix the demon world. And then the series just does a PowerPoint presentation of a bunch of adventures that they do. And there's, I guess, music that's supposed to be inspiring playing. And then at the end of it, Emma and the kids return. And then Phil sees Emma on the horizon and they look at each other. And Phil is like a teenager by the time that she gets back he's not a cute little baby anymore he's just he still has a baby face but he's like a teenager and i'm just like what i don't know what's happening that's not the phil i know no and that's where it ends that's it they just presumably they fixed some things in the demon world and now they all get to live in the human world great and fun fact nobody was credited with writing episode 10 of the anime previously all the episodes still had writer credits um but episode 10 nobody wanted to claim that shit and um the manga artist kayu shirai had a series composition on the episodes up until then but that also dropped at episode 10 because that's when things turned so yeah the anime was bad season two was bad season one yeah sorry season two was insufferable and the first season is like so good it's great 
So the fall having such a terrible follow up to it is really sad. It just rushes through everything. Nothing has an impact whatsoever. And I'm done talking about it. I'm tired. Let's move on. We are at spoiler checkpoint number two. We're talking about the manga. So this is a uh, chapter. 38 from now on and so this is right after they escape the the farm yeah and so it's similar to the the anime where they escape and they're like looking around they're walking around and they're like basically getting hunted in the forest by these like wild demons and then they get saved by musica and sonju the vegans yeah they're not vegans but okay okay and so this is like the backstory or like the, the world building part where you like learn more about the outside world. You learn more about like how demon society that actually operates outside of the farms. They have like their own hierarchy and their own whatever, like villages and cities and stuff. And we also get this cool, uh, this moment between uh, Sonju and Emma where they're hunting for food and you see the flower that was from before. That was stabbed into Connie's little body. Yeah. And so it's basically part of like a ritual that they do whenever they they kill another, like an animal or something. And so the flower basically symbolizes like, oh, it's like a, an offering to the gods or whatever. But to do that offering properly, your offering has to be alive. Yeah. So so the blood that's being like let out from the, from the kill. Is fresh. Fresh kills. Fresh kills. Fresh meat. Yeah. So they realize that all of their siblings died some pretty terrible deaths. They had to watch this rose or this flower thing get stabbed into their bodies by the demons who, again, are not pretty. They're quite ugly and quite scary. But through meeting Musica and Sonju, they also learn that not all demons eat humans. Yeah, not all demons are bad. They're actually pretty friendly and they teach them stuff and they're willing to help them. And when they learn about the world, they also learn about the fact that there is a human world out there. Like the world was divided into two and there's a place out there where humans live peacefully without demons. So their goal now is to make it to the human world. Yeah, and you get this really cool reveal with Sonju too, where they're like, oh, why don't you guys eat humans? And they're like, oh, it's against our religion. And then Sonju's just like, oh man, if it weren't for whatever happened a thousand years ago, if it wasn't for that pact or whatever, the, the promise, I'd be eating humans left and right. Yeah. And he's like, I can't wait to stuff myself with human meat again. It's just because he's not allowed. But then I feel like they don't really do anything with that. With what? The promise? With Sonju wanting to eat humans again. Like he never really turns on the kids at any point. And he never, like, sneakily tries to eat one behind Musica's back. Well, that'd be against character, in my opinion. Because he's, like, very devout to his faith. Or not to his faith, but, like, to his morals. Yeah, but then why would he say, I can't wait to stuff myself with human meat again? Because he wants these kids to break the promise. He wants free-range kids. Because he liked it the way it was before, where the demons would have to hunt the humans. Right. He doesn't like the farm kids. Mm -hmm. They don't taste as delicious when they don't die... Yeah, like at the end of his spear <laughs> while he's hunting them. Like he wants yeah, to hunt. Yeah, people. he wants to hunt. And that will come that will come back up um in a little bit. Yeah. But first we'll talk about the kids arriving at shelter B0632, where guess what? It's not empty. There's a man that's been living there by himself for thirteen years who escaped from a different farm. Isn't that crazy? So the kids weren't the first people to escape nope, the farm. It's been done before. There has been other people. But this man who he refuses to name himself and he doesn't learn any of the kids' names either. For a while. For yeah, for a while. He didn't escape by himself. He had people, but they're all dead. And we, we don't know exactly how. 
And he also has given up on finding Minerva. And there's this moment, again, a thing that I feel like didn't play out, where Emma accuses him of having killed or annihilated the people that he escaped with. And I don't remember exactly what they did with that in the moment, but she straight up accuses him of annihilating his peers. But that that didn't happen. Well, I feel like she thinks he caused their deaths. And he's also like, I take blame for their deaths. Like, I feel guilty Yeah. for them dying. Yeah, I just like, I feel like this teased me. I thought that we were going to go a dark direction with Hugo with this. And then it was just not that. Like, there's a... Where you think, where he was actually like a bad Yeah. Guy. Like, he actually killed. Yeah. I thought that that's where they were going to go. Or that he, or if anything, that he had to put his friends out of their misery or something like that. But that's not what happened. It's more of a, like, I blame myself for everything. And I also thought that he was going to be a bad guy because, you know, he threatens to kill the kids if they stay in the shelter. He doesn't want them there. He puts a gun to Emma's head. And the way that they get him to take them to the next location where they're supposed to meet Minerva is by saying, let's make a deal. You take us to Minerva or we're going to blow up this whole fucking shelter because we found oh my God, yeah. a self-destruct button. Like, hello? Like these 12-year-old kids and under are literally threatening this A whole adult. adult. With a suicide mm -hmm. bomb. Mm -hmm. Excuse me? And I think that his reaction is like, well, he's like, okay, these kids are fucked. But also... Like, I get it, bro. He's like, I get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't like how innocent they come across. But then when they throw this at him, he's like, okay, at the very least, this is going to be entertaining. Yep. And so they go to this uh, new place called... Goldie, Goldie Pond! Which is like the second best arc in the whole series, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Whenever you say second best, I get confused because I'm just thinking about the stuff in the manga. But for you, season one is always going to be the best. Yeah. Season one is like top tier. It's like the best arc for Yeah, me. the escape arc. And I, I probably agree. But I, I really, really like Goldie Pond. Yeah. Goldie Pond was amazing. The way to Goldie Pond is really fun because Emma and Ray have to fight demons for the first time. The, the rest of the kids, they leave behind at the shelter because they have to move stealthily. And Hugo... Oh, we haven't said his name yet. His name is Hugo, the mystery man. You said it man. before. Oh, okay. did I? Yeah, you okay. did. Okay. Well, his name is Hugo. And now I will say it as many times as I want because it's a hot name. I don't think that the character is hot. But, like, it's a hot name. So you're like Norman, where you're just attracted to names. <laughs> He's just attracted to the name Emma, and you're just attracted to the name Hugo. 100%. And proud of it. So the way there to get to Goldie Pond is fun, because Hugo is like, okay, so there's a safe way that takes a few weeks, and then there's a quick way that takes a few days. And I refuse to be out there for, for a few weeks. So we're going the dangerous way, and if you die, you fucking die. So we see them, like, following his battle instincts and learning how to walk silently trying to avoid the demons and then having to ration bullets as they get close and we see some fun interactions between ray and emma too while they're on the way and i think that something that this series struggles with is getting enough fun meaningful screen time for all the characters because everything is just like plot 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 let's move it forward but it's hard to fit in these interactions between the kids where you're just like oh look at them reacting to each other and like oh this shows me what their relationship is it's very much plot oriented as opposed to character oriented yeah another great moment here as they're leaving the shelter is Hugo literally like sprints literally this man <laughs> sprints out the shelter <laughs> And these kids have to like try to catch up with him. And then he's just like, I'm gonna leave you guys behind if you can't keep up with me. 
I don't even care, bro. And then they finally catch a break. And then he's just like, wow, I'm kind of impressed they managed to keep pace. Yeah, we see him slowly, internally gaining respect for these kids. But he also doesn't care about them dying because he literally sets a trap where he wants one of them to die. He's like, which one should I kill off first? Right. He does not give a fuck. He's like, this is just going to make my life harder to deal with them. Who are we killing? And then, oh man, what fucking happens at Goldie Pond when they arrive? It's a hunting ground. Emma gets yeeted by some poachers and then they don't know where she went. And she wakes up in this weird and honestly beautiful and it looks like a a A city town yeah it looks like something from adventure time yeah it's so cartoony so she arrives there and it looks empty at first but it turns out that she has been dropped into goldie pond which is a hunting grounds for kids remember when we were talking about how sonju wanted to hunt the kids again this is what he wanted Except in the wild, not in a city. Yeah, so Goldie Pond is a secret hunting grounds that five high-class demons go to every three days. They always have, I think it's 40-something kids taken from different orphanages. Yeah, Yeah, different farms. So the kids, when they arrive, don't even know what demons are. They're like, oh, yeah, we got got adopted. Yay, whoa, look at this cool new city. And then they see the demons like running after them. And it's just like, oh God, excuse me. And they get told beforehand, like, okay, you need to run. You need to hide. You need to save yourself. And they're literally just like, yawn. Okay, sure. When is this going to be over? Like they're, again, the contrast between these blissful lives that they've been leading up till then and what the reality of the situation is, is so stark. And it literally doesn't hit them until they're being chased down and they can't even run properly. But the demons want them to run. And they want them to fight. That's what they like. Especially Lewis. They want the struggle. They like, yeah, so the demons, there's like a bunch of them. And like, they're like high aristocratic members of the, there's like a royalty. There's like a monarchy of demons and stuff. And so they're like high ranking. They have some amount of power in the society. And so they decide to have like a secret hunting ground just for them. Because the demons aren't allowed to hunt anymore. That was part of the promise that this whole system is based off of. But they miss hunting. And when Emma arrives, she causes quite a stir because she has some fighting spirit in her. The demons can see that. The kids can see that. She's trying her best to save as many kids as possible. And she very quickly gets brought into this group of kids who are trying to take down Goldie Pond from the inside. And she meets their leader, a guy named Lucas. And who is Lucas? One of Hugo's friends from all the way back then. Hugo had to run away from Goldie Pond all those years ago because all of his friends were dying and they were like, you can still walk or you can still run. You need to escape right now. So he thought he was leaving all of his friends for dead, but one of them survived. So tragic. Yeah, so years ago, their group, Hugo and Lucas's group, they went to Goldie Pond. Right, because that's where Minerva told them to go. That was the next thing on the list. But then they saw the demons and then the demons were like, this is a hunting ground. We're going to hunt you. If you want to escape, you should try to escape, mm-hmm. but you're probably going to die. But then actually Hugo managed to survive, but all his mm-hmm. friends were dead or thought dead. But then Lucas also survived, but he's been hiding out in Goldie Pond ever since. And he's been recruiting kids over the years. Right. Yeah, the demons don't know that Lucas is still alive because they hunt throughout the little city town thing, but Lucas stays hidden in this one building and he's like planning everything from behind. And there's this really lovely moment where Lucas asks Emma if if Hugo is still alive and she nods and he just immediately, just the look on his face 
is it's so much pain and relief and joy and it's so heart-wrenching and he's just like that's great i'm so happy and that was the first moment in the manga that really pulled at my heartstrings you're you're giving me this blank face right now i mean yeah i was emotional but i was that i was just like okay moving on oh my god okay well let's move on to talk about the plan to take down the demons so the kids have been pretending like all the kids that are on the hunting grounds who are plotting against Goldie Pond. They've been pretending like they don't really know what they're doing. And they've had to sacrifice some kids because if they tried to save everybody, that would show that they're capable and they need to blindside the demons. But Emma comes along and they're able to move the plan forward and they fucking learn some things. And we see Emma do some cool things too. So let's start with just a cool thing that happens when they take down one of the demons. There's a pair of siblings among the demons that hunt together and they manage to take down the sister and then what does the remaining brother do he eats the sister not in that way but like in in like literal way okay okay in the literal sense because the sister is dead i wasn't going there it's not that kind of podcast no no it's not but he eats his sister mm, yeah it doesn't sound great literally <laughs> I don't eats her like... dead body yes eats her brain and then suddenly he's talking and acting as if she is present so that kind of gives us a hint into the way that there is something meaningful about the fact that the demons eat brains. Oh, and the kids realize when they're on the farm that because there's so much focus on the kids being uh, happy, there's no surveillance on the farm. There's, um, what was I going to say? Oh my God, my brain just drew a perfect blank. They don't want your brain to not develop. <laughs> Okay, but okay, yes. Yeah. So the kids realize that the reason that the daily training is so important is that the demons want their brains. Not my brain, apparently, <laughs> but the demons want their brains. And so there's something important about the brain. And this is the first time that we get a hint into what that could be. And as they're strategizing for how they're going to deal with these five demons, especially Lewis, who single handedly took down all of Hugo and Lucas's group all those years ago. Lewis is very bloodthirsty. He's very old. He loves the hunt. He's like the Hisoka of this series. Oh, yeah. He just loves kids. Okay. <laughs> like, like really. Yeah. Like Orochimaru. If you guys know Naruto, like he's like the Orochimaru. Or if you know Hunter x Hunter, he's like the Hisoka. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I wasn't specifically thinking about him liking kids, but that's also a thing. It's more like how battle is like, uh, not sexual, but... I, can't, I wasn't going there. It's like pleasureful. I mean, you can go there with Hisoka. That's there. But like battle is something that is a pleasureful experience. He lives for the hunt and he likes seeing the fire in kids' eyes. So he is a very dangerous person. And what I love about Goldie Pond is that we see Emma by herself for the first time because Norman isn't there at first because Norman and Hugo eventually make their way. Ray, Ray and Hugo. Oh, did I say Norman? So sorry. Maybe I just miss Norman at this point, except I don't because... You don't miss Norman? Oh my god, I was like, where's Norman? Where is he? Is he actually dead? Is he going to be out for the okay, rest yes. of the story? I was also worried about Norman and wondering if he was alive or not, but I think I love Ray so much that Norman just takes such a backseat for me. For me, I felt like Ray started taking on a lot of Norman's qualities. Like he softened up, and yeah. I think that's because he was around Emma. And so, yeah, she, again, like she has this effect where she, she just like softens people up around her and then she gets them to think like in a similar way that she does. 
because she's very like moral she's very she, she's again she's like the heart of the story yeah ray becomes a lot more malleable he can't even believe after they've escaped that he ever considered giving up his family and leaving them behind and that's Emma's effect also. And Norman and Ray also have an effect on Emma because when she's in Goldie Pond and she has to figure out how they're going to make it out of this, how they're going to take Goldie Pond down, she has to think like Norman and Ray because they're more strategizers. They always won against her in tag. They always won against her in chess. And she has to take on some of their traits and some of their characteristics and get into that sort of headspace in order to succeed in this setting. So I love the way that these kids all learn from each other and they take the best out of each other so that they can make up for their weaknesses. Yeah, so as their as their plan is, is going, they take out four of the five demons. And so only Lewis is left. And he's basically the most dangerous one of them all. He's been doing this for the longest. He loves the hunt. He knows the city. He knows the kids. But the only difference now is Emma. And so she basically uh, confronts him. And they're basically talking. And he's like, there's nothing you can do. Like, you're here alone. Where are your friends? And then she's like, where are your friends, bro? They're all dead, bro. What are you going to do? And then he's just like, all right, bet. And he just they just start battling. And it's crazy. Mm-hmm. They make use of small spaces so that he can't, he doesn't have as much movement because he's so much bigger than them. But what I love is that Emma asks him if they can just not fight. Like, she, she went full, like, Avatar Aang here, where she's like, isn't there a way that we can avoid fighting? This is uh, Emma's talk no jutsu. In <laughs> yeah, she's like, I hate war. We This is a violent world, but I don't want to fight. I want peace. I want what comes as the result of fighting. She's not focused on the violence. She's always looking ahead of that, always looking beyond it. And I love that about her. And I think that one of the messages of this story, again, is, and this comes through Emma, is that, yeah, you could run away and save yourself, fight your way out of the situation that you're in and save yourself. But then everybody that you left behind is still going to have the responsibility of making their own way out. And she's like, I don't want any of us to fight anymore. I don't want any cattle child to go through this ever again. So let's do this fighting now so that nobody has to do this later on. Yeah, and that's her idealism coming through. Yeah. Because in a sense, you can be like, yeah, that's true. But then in another sense, you're like, fighting's always going to be there. If there's a different group fighting with another different group, it's like conflict is always abound. And that's what Ray says to her. And that's the message of the story as well. Like the, the human world also has its own conflicts and you can't escape it. But she's like, at least let's just try to fix what's going on here. And the kids at Goldie Pond have a similar mindset as her because Lucas originally, as he was gathering people, he asked them if they would escape with him. And they ended up at a place where they were like, yeah, we could escape, but I want to destroy this place. And so when they do manage to take down Goldie Pond, it's like a miniature version of what they're trying to do overall. They could have just escaped, but they decide to tear it all down. And effectively, they change the world in this small way. And that's what they're trying to do as the story goes on. They're trying to change the world because they believe that it's better to tear everything down instead of just saving yourself. Yeah, and before they, they tear it down, we get this cool reveal at Goldie Pond where there was like an elevator that leads to the human world that William Minerva set up because Goldie Pond was supposed to be like a safe haven for kids that escaped the farms. The elevator stopped working. 
because he got ratted out. And so the demons took over the farm. And so when Emma and I think Lucas go to the elevator and they find out like more stuff about William Minerva, they find out that there's another exit to the demon world, to the human world. Where is it at? It's in Grace Field, baby. They got to go back. Excuse me? They have to go back to where they escaped from. I was like, oh my God. They're going back. Yeah, I I thought it was a cool reveal. Did you like that reveal? I was like, okay, this is fine plot wise. But I was like, this is kind of lame because they have to go back. Like if I was in their shoes, I'd be like, I'm just going to end it here, bro. I'm not going back there. Okay, well, that's why you're not the protagonist here. You don't have that main character energy. Exactly. I don't. Neither do I. Like at this point, I'm like, Ray. I'm like, what, really? We have to go back? If I was Ray, I'd be like, I should have just stayed. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, they're like, we already did this much. We're going to keep going. And remember, Phil. Think about Phil, Klaus. Don't you want to save Phil? Or there should have been clues at the farm. Why were there no clues at the farm? That you could have just escaped at the thing. Oh, my God. I... <laughs> I haven't thought about that because they did they did manage to find this like secret room in uh, Isabella's room because they like plotted out the dimensions of all of the space and they realized that there's a secret phone in there. If there's a whole ass elevator there, they should have clued in. Also, something I was wondering, where did Crone get the pen that she gave to Norman? Oh, that gets given to her by somebody who was working for like HQ. I don't know if it was actually Minerva. I don't know if they hint about it, but they they mention it. Why would you give it to Crone? I I don't know. I guess because she, they believed that she wanted to try to escape at one point. But she wanted to be a mom. Those were her motives. They just knew she was a real one, I guess. Or they- But she wasn't a real one. She wanted to sacrifice the kids. I don't know. The plot required her having the pen. Plot hole, let's go. Fine, I'll give you that. All right, moving on to the next arc. I don't know much about this arc. I don't remember much. Basically, everybody returns to the shelter from Goldie Pond. All these new kids arrive at the shelter. So we have this big happy family. Oh yeah, no wait, Emma gets gets fucked up by someone, I think. Oh, is that at Goldie Pond with Lewis? She gets injured. A bunch of people get injured in the battle at Goldie Pond. Yeah, so then they have to like rush back to the shelter because that's where the medicine is. But they also discover, like, new clues about, like, the next place that they need to go to to escape the demon world. Right. Yeah. And it takes... Is this where the, the time skip happens? Yeah, around this time because they're, like, trying to search around the whole world. Oh, yeah. So Musica was the one who first mentioned the seven walls. Like, go find the seven walls. And then somebody in Goldie Pond mentions it? Or does Minerva mention it in the voice recording over the phone? Yeah. I think so. And then they like, I think Gilda or someone decrypts like an ancient text at the bunker. The plan is they're going to find God and rewrite the promise. Oh, his name is like, oh, we we, we haven't talked about this yet. He has a name, but it's in like ancient lettering. Yeah, you can't say the name. It's just there's like something that looks like an eye at the beginning. Then it's just. That's uh, actual cultural appropriation. That's not an eye. I'm sorry. It's just meant to be non- uh, intelligible to us because we're mere humans 
Yes, we are. And I love all the stuff that happens with the seven walls about us just being mere humans and our minds are limited, but we have to go beyond it. Okay, it's it's later, but it's it's my favorite. It's my favorite. But yeah, so they are looking for the seven walls so that they can rewrite the promise that was made so that they can build a new life for themselves and all the cattle children to come. Yeah, so at this point, there's been like a, almost like a two year time skip between Goldie Pond and this arc. Yeah, it was a year and eight months. Yeah, so it's like almost time's up because they were planning to return to Gracefield in two years before the time skip. I actually didn't like that because in my opinion, it just like raised the stakes artificially because before they had, oh, two years to free Phil and free all the kids. But they spent like a year and eight months looking for this one thing, looking for the seven walls. Yeah, but then doesn't that kind of lend some credence to how difficult that task was? Because they had to search far and wide i mean yeah but it like how how long did it take them to get out of gracefield and finish off goldie pond like it's like a month okay but they knew exactly where they were going i don't care these are the genius kids these are the smartest people in the verse it's gonna take you almost two years to find this one place like come on i agree they could have shortened the timeline but a lot happened and they they grew and they got smarter a lot happened that we didn't get to see because there was a time skip no, we didn't. And then how does it end? Andrew, this dude. Who was working for the Rattree guy, who's like the mediator between the human world and the demon world. Yeah. He's basically he's basically like humanity's traitor because he basically keeps up the farms. And he's just like, I'm going to feed all these kids to these demons. I don't care. Yeah. He's like, you're cattle children, but I am built different. But it's just like, no, you're not. Yeah. So he breaks into the shelter and it's time for everybody to pack up. They have a plan for how to escape quickly because there's multiple exits to get out. And then Hugo and Lucas, who, by the way, had a beautiful reunion. They decide to stay behind to fend off Andrew and all of these guys while the rest of the kids escape. And they say to themselves, we're not going to die here. Like at one point, it would have been nice to die here, but the focus is on staying alive because we love this new family that we're in for the past year and a half or year and eight months. We've gotten so close to them. We would like to live. So they say that, but then later on, they say this shelter is too nostalgic. Yeah, this is the perfect place to make our grave. Typical dad behavior. Look at these dads sacrificing themselves for the kids. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yep. Overall, I really like this story for the way that everybody is encouraged not to sacrifice themselves to save other people. It's let's save everybody. People love you. You can't just plan to die to make everything better for everybody else. Don't do that. I love that about this story. But then Hugo and Lucas are kind of like, they try to get onto that mentality a bit. But at the in the end of the day, they're like, yeah, we're, we're from another time. We're a little older. If it's our time, it's time. Yeah. And we're doing it for a good cause. It was time. They died, and then there's this very sweet moment where we see them in the afterlife meeting up with all of their friends who died 13 years ago, or I guess 15 years ago now, because time skip. And I like that this sets the precedent for how the world of the Promised Neverland has spirits, and they have some kind of consciousness, and that comes back at the, like, the very, very, very end. So I just wanted to drop that in there. i just like to add um, how Andrew, the guy working for Rattree, how he found out about the shelter. And he basically interrogated best boy Phil, literally went to the farm and he's just like, where's Phil? I'm gonna need to talk to this little kid. And I'm just like, oh my God, Phil, what have you been up to? Please, please come back to the story. He does mention that. It's always about Phil. Phil, best boy. Let's go. He is. He is the best boy. And so Andrew actually survives the explosion. Yo. And what does this guy do? Fucking hunts down these kids. 
starts killing these kids like in the middle of this forest half his face like ripped off like yeah there's a full um gus from breaking bad for anybody who's seen that sure okay you haven't no oh my gosh anyways so andrew's just like going off he's just like i'm better than these kids i'm gonna kill all these kids i'm humiliated how dare you do this to me and I was just like, please die, this guy, please. Yeah, yeah. He comes after them and like Hugo and Lucas just sacrifice themselves, but Andrew finds a way to survive. Like how? Hello? I know, I know. And he says this thing about how he ran across some kids and managed to kill them because the kids went on ahead. And he said that the kids had the perfect opportunity to kill him, but they hesitated because they didn't want to kill a human. And so they were easy to slaughter. And so he has this mentality, which runs rampant in this world, that like, this is a violent world. You have to strike first. You can't have mercy. What the kids bring into this world and this story is the opposite, where kindness is what is strong. Taking care of everybody is strength, but you can't always do that in this world. It's, again, that idealism of Emma and just the reality of the world that, they, that they're living in. They have uh, the Zoomer mentality, whereas Andrew has the Boomer mentality. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know what? You know what that mentality gets Andrew? He gets fucking eaten by a wild beast demon. Poetic justice. He, yeah, he's literally saying like, you kids are meant to be eaten. And then he gets ate. He gets fucking nom nom nommed. And the kids manage to escape. And then it's just like, okay, that happened. They make it out. I don't know. We don't care about Andrew. He's just, again, this story is about plot, not characters. And Andrew served a point in the plot. Okay. And then the kids manage to link up with some people who are like, oh, let me take you to our leader. We have a whole hideout for a bunch of other escaped kids. And who is the king of this paradise where all these kids are living in? Bro, it's William Minerva. What? I thought he died. Oh, wait, it's not William Minerva. Oh, bitch, it's Norman. It's Norman. He didn't die either. Wait, what? How did Norman survive? Oh, because he got shipped out to this facility called Lambda. Mm -hmm. He gets experimented on and he gets aged up. Oh, yeah. He basically escaped with, like, a bunch of his friends, and they're all kind of fucked up. Mm -hmm. And they're all, like, vengeful towards the demons. And so he basically builds a society, and he starts rescuing other kids at other farms. And he's basically become, like, their leader slash god. And they see him as this stoic, serious guy who has everything under control, really like a god. So when he sees his family again, they're so shocked at this other side of him. And I just realized that, yes, Norman does get aged up in these experiments. In the anime, he's still just a scrawny kid. They don't incorporate that whole thing. I mean, Lambda is part of the anime, but he's still the same size. But in the, in the manga, he gets like beefed up. And you know what? I still wasn't feeling it. Ray is still my favorite, even though Norman looked more like an adult. Okay, no, he's still 14. I know he's still 14. I know he is still 14. Are you saying you like them young? No. You just like Ray young? No. No! <laughs> I mean, this reflects your real life. Stop. Stop right there. <laughs> You're not allowed to say that. These are my sons, okay? Is that what you would say? Stop it! No! <laughs> Close. I'm sweating. You have to halt this behavior right now. Okay, so we make it to to this hideout in a bunch of trees where all these kids are living, and it is so nice to see all of these children living together, free of 
all of the shit that they've gone through. It's just seeing these like tables and tables of kids eating so much food. It makes me feel really happy. And it had the opposite effect of the anime bringing in more kids. Because when we watched the anime and they just bring in Norman's original squad, I was like, okay, you're only bringing in these four or five people. So they should be an important part of the plot. But then they're not. But it is kind of quantity over quality because the more kids that you see coming together, the more you're like, yes, this is what it's about. Saving as many people as possible. And it's just so nice to see all these kids getting to eat together. Like we see in the beginning of the series but now they're actually closer to being free and in this arc we also find out what norman's plan is to try to escape the demon world or actually not escape the demon world as emma wanted he literally just wants to kill all the demons and then live in the demon world without the demons yeah he's like all these demons they're gonna be fucking dead and emma's just like no please no i'm simping for these demons please let them live Ugh. It's complicated because she became friends with Musica and Sonju. That's two demons out of literally the whole species. <sighs> okay, but like, I I get it. I like the way that she explains it in the, in the manga so much more. Okay, hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. What if Norman kills all the demons, right? But they let Musica and Sonju go to the human world. Sonju would be so happy. <laughs> No, because that's like the whole human world is free-range humans. That's like the whole human world is a farm. Exactly. Mm, Okay, okay, I see see what you're saying. But like, okay, I really do like the way that Emma explains her mindset in the manga. Because in the anime, it's very, it's a lot more slimmed down. And she comes to her answer pretty much right away. But in the manga, she's like, I don't know what to do. I know that what I'm asking for doesn't make sense. I know that people have faced so much pain because of the way that the world is including us including our family but i still can't get myself to hate them i think that's a valid ideology but also like it's about survival it is i just don't feel like emma's survival instincts aren't kicking in because she has a very strong emotional intelligence yes and i also think that if it wasn't for ray and norman who have a much stronger survival sense her idealism wouldn't have worked it requires that balance you know you need all kinds of people to start a revolution but i like that emma has conflicting feelings about this because in the very beginning her inner dialogue her revelation is that we're food and that continues to be what goes on through her head like these demons they're just eating and we learn that the demon's origin was that they did i say that right did i say origin or did i say oranges you said origins okay (laughs) okay so they learn from norman that the origin of the demons is that whenever they eat they evolve and then they take on the genes of whatever they've eaten and they inherit its traits does that remind you of anything i actually didn't make the connection until you said or until you it's the chimera ants it's just like the chimera ants just blanket psa watch hunter hunter or read it or read it it's all good and then the chimera ant arc is oh i I can't even i don't have time to get into this but watch hunter hunter read hunter hunter do something but yeah so emma kind of realizes that yes they eat humans but they're also doing it to survive because if they don't eat humans then they start to degenerate and they lose their unique traits and they would get to a point where they wouldn't even recognize their own families and their own livelihoods anymore so demons are indebted to humans for who they are and what they're able to be yeah i think demons need 
humans more than humans obviously need demons, right? 100%. And I think, in my opinion, Emma's uh, reluctance to killing demons is just because they're like humans. They have a lot of human traits. Because she has no qualms about killing wild demons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She only cares about not killing demons who've already eaten humans. And is it not to be expected that because the demons only have their traits and societies because they're based off humans, that their societies are just like humans? We learn that the way that the demon society is structured, it's very hierarchical. There's a monarchy, there's royals, and they control resources. They control the amount of humans that the other demons get. They control the quality of the humans that the majority of the demons get. The average demon doesn't get access to the high-grade, good, free-range brains that the upper-level demons get. It's all very structured in society. And we learn that um, a long time ago, Musica made it so... Like, okay, Musica has special blood. Because of plot. Because of plot. Yeah, there's, there's no reason. She's just destined to have this blood. She was... She was built different. She has never needed to eat humans to survive. And if a demon consumes her blood, they will be able to retain their traits and they will not degenerate. And a long time ago, Musica was trying to make the world better, you know, saving demons from poverty, essentially, by sharing her blood. And then the demons at the top of the society swooped in, killed them all off. And they were like, no, because if people don't need the meat to survive, then they can't keep selling their meat from the top. It's a whole thing. Doesn't that sound... Yeah. It's it's very human. It's very human. And my argument is, why don't the demons just rid themselves of this and just be wild? And it's just like, oh, but I don't want to go back there. And it's just like you won't, you don't even, you won't even remember. Okay, but that's like saying, why don't, why doesn't every human just decide to be a titan? Like, why is there any qualms about being like a rogue titan? I'm just saying, being wild is better than being in a society. We live in a society. We live in a society. <laughs> We live in a society. Yeah, and everybody suffers. Yes. In in the society. At least the way it's presented in Promise Neverland. Yes, everybody suffers. And I think if we were going to extend some empathy towards the very rich people in our society, I guess they suffer too emotionally. But anyways. Yeah, and so then another part of uh, Norman's plan to basically get rid of the demons is to have them fight each other. And so we find out that there was a certain like clan of demons that didn't like the structure of the monarchy and that they were actually in favor of using Musica's blood, Musica's blood to cure the degeneration. But then they got found out and they got ratted out. And so they basically got banished to become wild demons again. However, in the past like couple hundred years, they managed to stay relatively functional as like humanoid creatures. And they've been plotting to take back their position in the monarchy and so when norman comes by and he's just like i want to make an alliance you guys can have your station at the top of the society but you have to help me out with my plan and also the demons here are smart norman here is smart because they both realize that the other is just using them yeah they're both banking on two different things this dude is or the demon is banking on the fact that he will survive to eat norman and norman is banking on the fact that they're all going to kill each other so it really just depends how things go and while norman is planning out that uh emma and ray start looking for the seven walls everything is prepared for them to go look for it they have all the stuff and their bodies disappear from the physical plane when they go into the seven walls yeah so while norman's 
enacting his plan to kill all the demons in the in the demon city, Ray and Emma are like, okay, but it, like, give us some time to get the seven waltz thing sorted out. And hopefully we'll be back in time before your revolution. Yeah, because if we make a new promise that separates humans and demons, then we won't need to genocide the demons. And oh my gosh, the seven walls arc. It's like maybe the second or third best arc. I might, I might like it better than the first. The escape arc? Yeah, if, really? if it was longer. If it was longer, because we don't spend that much time here, but it's amazing. So, it's so good. They they do all the conditions that they need to get to this place that is not in the physical world because their bodies just fucking disappear in front of all the kids. And they go into this plane where they have to start looking for what's his name? He who must not be named the Voldemort. Yeah. The god who humans and demons a long time ago made a promise with, and now they're trying to make a new promise with him again or them again. I don't know if the, if if whatever their name is is gendered, but wow, I can't believe you just said the name like that. How do you know that that was the name? I oh I don't, but that's how I pronounced it in my head when I was reading wow, it. Wow, you just offended the demons, the demon kind. It's okay. It's okay. You just offended that whole religion. It's they're not they're not okay. No, stop. It's fine. So the seven walls, when they get there, it is trippy as shit because they arrive and they are back at Gracefield and Emma and Ray have to start going through all the rooms and there's just this whole wonky shit happening. And I want so badly to have seen this animated because they go in and they're falling through walls and things are sideways and upside down and things are like all wavy and weird and they're aging up and they're aging down and sometimes like at one point ray is old and he's carrying emma as a baby and they realize that they're in a fucking maze yep space-time maze crazy shit where it's just like nothing is working time isn't working space isn't working reality isn't working you just have to be like strong in the mind and what are these two? The strongest in the mind. Mm -hmm. And at one point, Emma and Ray get separated. And Ray is like forgetting why he's even there. And he realizes that the reason that people don't come back from the seven walls a lot of the time is because they get stuck. Their brains get stuck and they can't make it back. But Emma fucking figures it out. And she realizes that you just have to use willpower. Because when they were trying to imagine going back or going forward in the maze, their bodies would age down and then up. So she realizes that it's all about the power of the mind. And this is all just a big metaphor for what we've been talking about, which is the hope and the belief that you can change the world. Emma realizes that they're able to make it through the maze because everything that is being generated by the maze comes from their minds. And she says, um, it depends on me. The world can change with a thought. So powerful. So metaphoric. You don't look pleased. I mean, it was fine, but like the actual presentation of the maze of this whole arc was pretty good. Thank you. Thank you. It was great. So they, they realized together what they need to do to get to Ishwishwish. Stop saying that. Oh my god. Uh, I'm getting offended. Oh my gosh. Are you a demon? No, I'm just laughing. This is so funny. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Okay, so Emma and Norman tried together to make it. But only Emma is the one who can break through because Norman's, or sorry, Ray, Ray's mind is still confined. The walls are in his own mind. He's too, he's too connected to reality. He's still living in reality. He's logical. Where he doesn't have any hope. Emma has hope and that's what's carrying her forward. Yes. That's what leads her to the meeting 
with the demon king, Lord God. Yeah, let's call him the demon king. That's that's easy. Uh, even though there's a whole demon queen that that's it. Anyways, yeah, so Emma is able to make it there because she can free her mind. He says, you must free yourself, free your world. And that's what she does. She's able to forge a promise to change the world because her brain is flexible and malleable enough to believe that she can change the world. Like, oh, I love that so much. So she gets there and she makes the promise. And it's pretty simple. It's that every cattle child gets sent to the human world. And that after that happens, movement between the worlds closes completely. And then the demon king asks for a reward. I don't even know if he's a demon. He kind of exists between the, the two worlds. But... He asks for a reward, and then we don't learn what that reward is going to be for a long time. Yeah, I think the I think the demon king thing is an actual demon. Yes. Because at one point, he's like, what a fine mind. You seem like you'd be very delicious. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair. Yeah, so he eats humans. And I think one of the, one of the stipulations was that on the demon side, like the very best mind that you have is mine to eat. Like, so you, you guys can never, like, even if you're the queen, if, if, even if you're the king. You can't have the best of the product. You have to sacrifice it to me. Yeah, because every promise that the Demon King makes has to come with a reward. And that reward is whatever the person who is making the promise wants the most. And that's all we know before Emma returns to the physical plane and they move on. Yeah, and she reforges the promise. Because at that point, she gives up something. Or she gives up the thing that she likes the most. And we are not told what that is until later on now what is happening in the physical world while the seven walls thing is going on is some stuff with gilda and dawn looking for musica and sonju and we meet um how have you been pronouncing her name aisha 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 yeah aisha. okay aisha anyways yeah she has the best backstory in all of this series in my opinion agreed because we find out that there was a demon that was working in one of the factories when she was a baby and because she had like a defect like a birthmark on her face like she was gonna get thrown out but then the demon starts sympathizing with her as a baby because the demon also has like a facial defect and so what he does is basically takes her home and he starts to raise her as his own kid and so when norman comes norman and his group they come to kill the demon because they hate all the demons. She's like, oh my god, I'm gonna kill you all. Like, I'm gonna kill you, Norman. I'm gonna kill your group because you killed my dad. Yeah. And it's just like, wow, crazy. Because at this point, you think she doesn't speak because she, like, she and Norman's group are, like, one and the same. Like, she hates demons. She doesn't speak to other people because she just wants to kill demons. And it's just like you find out it's the reverse, where she doesn't speak because she hates Norman's group. And she loved her demon dad and they and they killed him. And she told them to their faces that she hates them and wants to kill them. But she said it in like the demon tongue. Mm -hmm. So they just saw this scared little girl that had been raised by demons. Yeah, like they thought she was being kept like as a prisoner. But no, she was taken care of quite well. And then what do they even do with her? Not much. They did nothing. The backstory was the best part. Like, she just, like, tried to keep tabs on Gilda and, and Dawn. And then when they were, like, we, we're going to save Gil, we're going to save Sonju and Musica, she, like, overhears. And then she's just like, oh, so you guys are going to save them? Like, what are you talking about? And then they think that she's in league with Norman. But then she, like, tells them her backstory. And then they're like, okay, so you, like, agree with us that, like, not all demons are bad. And she's like, yeah, I agree. And Norman 
has sent Gilda and Don out to find Musica and Sonju, saying that he wants to incorporate them into his plan, but he has secretly given other people in the group orders to kill them on sight. But I guess Aish ends up helping, um, and they and they escape with Musica and Sonju, and they bring them into the city, or into the, the capital. Yeah, they bring them into the capital just in time for Ray and Emma to be at the capital at the same time. Right. So they've finished forging the promise. They're there. Well, Emma's finished forging the promise. They're there. And Norman has just set his plan in motion where he has pit the uh, the demon monarchy and the exiled demons against each other. And by the time they make it, everybody is fucking dead. Everybody is dead, dead. Because you know what? The demons killed each other. There's a whole backstory of, of the guy who's banished and he had this whole monologue about oh, how I'm going to kill the queen, and oh, wow, I got mistreated unfairly, and the queen's just like, miss me with that bullshit. I'm going to kill all of you right now. And you know what she does? Because you know what? The queen is a badass. Mm-hmm. Can't deny that. She's just straight up a badass. She she has to get killed twice, because some demons very rarely have two cores, not just the one. Oh, right, we never said this, but the weakness of the demons is like right in like the middle of their faces. In one of their eyes or something. And if you like puncture that or like stab that, they don't regenerate. Because if you like stab them or injure them anywhere else. Yes. They can still regenerate. So they're like really difficult to kill. That's why they were masked. So you have to break the mask and then you have to like stab them in that specific place. But in the case of the queen, she has a second core, as they call it. So even if you did stab her in that place, she like comes back to life and they're like, oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. It's pretty wild. She comes back. And then she's like absorbing all of these or showing all of the humans that she's eaten. And she's also she also eats all of the demons that were slaughtered. And then everybody that they've eaten, like all the humans and other demons, their personalities like start showing up yeah. on the body of the queen. And it's like all deformed. And you see the face, you see Crone, Crone comes back. Mm-hmm. I think you see Connie or something. Yes. They're all there and they're like, oh my God, help me. Like, why am I in this body? And then all the other demons are like, oh my God, I need to escape. And it's just like really terrifying. Yeah. And at this point, uh, Emma, Ray, and Norman are all there. They have all gathered in front of the queen. And she's like, oh, this is perfect. I get to eat these three beautiful brains in front of me. And then Sonju and Musica arrive as well. And we learn that Sonju is like, is a prince. He's the brother of Queen Le Gravalima. I haven't had to say that out loud yet. Le Gravalima. Yeah, and you find out that Sonju was banished too from the cap or from the family because he didn't want to eat humans. He also was part of the religion that revered Musica, and so he drank the blood, so he didn't ha- he didn't have to degenerate. Mm-hmm. And the world thought that they were dead. Because everybody else who had received Musica's blood before got massacred. Because again, it threatened the status quo of the demon society. And they were like, we're not going to do that. And then the queen and Musica face off. And Musica just has this almost pity for her. Where she says, how come you are so terribly starved? And it gets into this thing about how the demon society is structured in this way where... Even if you have all the best meat, it's still not enough. And I read this as a metaphor for how rich and greedy people are still emotionally empty or still can be emotionally empty because there's never enough. There's no such thing as satisfaction. Because they're looking for the answer externally, not internally. They don't know who they are. And that that's pointed out here because music is just like, who are you, bro? And then the queen's just like, uh, excuse me? I don't know. I don't know who I am. 
Yeah, she's taking on all the personality traits and brains of all the people that she's consumed. Like, she doesn't know who she is. And then I don't even think they have to, like, kill her, kill her. Because she just kind of... Kills herself. Yeah, she, like, self-implodes, basically, because she can't handle... Thinking. Even with all those brains, she can't think. And there's this thing about how... I don't know. I th- I think there's this cheesy line that Musica says where she's just like, you simply ate too much. Or something like that. And it's like, you know, again, this is all about plot. To me, the way I was reading it is that this plot is serving the purpose of delivering a message. And the characters are representative of the different sides of this conflict. And they contribute to this message in different ways. Yeah, and what's also cool about this battle is that Norman's group shows up. And they're like, okay, so we can kill this queen. And then they all try to attack the queen. Literally, most of them or all of them like get die or like get injured severely. Right. And so it's just like these pro demon hunters that like literally have no problems with any other demon are outmatched by this single monarchy figure. And it's just like whoa, like the you know like she's super powerful. Even Sonju, who's like the top demon hunter, is having problems. And she had to get taken down by her own greed and her own gluttony. That was the only way to go about it. And I really like what we see of the demons trying to figure out, okay, now that the monarchy has been dismantled, there's total chaos going on. How do we move forward? How do we change? Because the last time Musica tried to change things, everybody who she tried to save died and everything just went back to normal. So they're like, we need to do this differently. A line that I really like is when they say we are being tested for whether we can change or not. So tearing down the monarchy and quite literally the monarchy like eating itself and collapsing upon itself. It's up to the demons to use that as an opportunity to make a better world for themselves. And we know because the promise has been made that demons and humans are going to live separately from now. So if the demons are going to survive, they're all going to need to drink Musica's blood and they all have to not rely on humans anymore. Before we get to the end, there's still a little bit left to go. And at this point, we realize that there's still another hurdle to get over. And that's actually who. Peter Ratry is shuffling things along, controlling things from behind. He wants to take over the demon society. Yeah, now that there's a power vacuum, he's just like, okay, like, let's go. I can I can still save this. I'm going to go back to Gracefield. I'm going to kidnap and kill all these kids. And they have no idea how they're going to pull this off because they know that Peter Rattery has accumulated 2,000 demon soldiers to fight against the kids. So there's not really a clear way to go through it. But again, Emma is so great because she is this revolutionary figure. She believes that even if they don't know how they're going about it, they're going to do it. She straight up says, no, I don't have any ideas right now, but we'll think about it along the way because we've made it this far. We're going to do it. We have to believe that we're going to make it in order to try. So we're going to try. And I believe that we can do it. It's like this, this cyclical way of thinking. It's almost, it's almost a magical thinking where she's like, I want this to happen and I'm going to try to make it happen. So no matter what, it's like we either don't try and we don't make it or we do try and we do make it. And if and I'm not even going to consider the possibility that we're not going to make it. Because I believe in this. So you're saying she's like the visionary with no actual expertise. She just wants things to happen, but she doesn't make them happen. She gets other people to make them happen. Are you say? are you comparing Emma to Steve Jobs right now? I didn't say it, you said it. (laughs) 
You set me up in every possible way. I did not. You could have said Jeff Bezos. You could have said Elon Musk. You could have said any of those billionaires. And I would have been like, I didn't say it. You said it. No, those billionaires, they're they're on the demon side of this conflict. So, and what they end up doing is that they, they infiltrate Grace Field and they're like, all right, now we're fucking taking over. We're hacking into your systems. We're, I don't know. That's all they do. They hack into the systems. <laughs> they also find out where the portal is right. to the human world. Yeah. They're like, we're not going to escape. We're, we're just taking over and then we're going to leave. And then Peter Rattery, they have that whole confrontation with him. And I realized as we have been talking that the way that Peter Rattery sees himself in relation to the kids is the way that Isabella framed herself early on, where she was like, you've lived a peaceful life. You should be happy. And I love you and you love me. So let's just go through this process peacefully. Stop trying to escape. Just enjoy the rest of the time you have. Peter Rattery's perspective is like, I'm your creator. I'm your dad. I was the one that gave you this life. Didn't you have a beautiful life up until now? You wouldn't even have been born if it wasn't for me looking after these farms. So moving forward, I just want peace. I am going to make it so that no kids can rebel anymore. That's what all of the Lambda uh, experimentation was for. He was trying to take things into a new level where the kids were not free range and they couldn't think for themselves, but they were still high quality. So he is just the representation of this oppressive system that demands peace through complete suppression of any individual will. And he also wants you to thank him for it. Yeah, and so he tries to get the moms and the grandma Isabella, who we found out, got a promotion. Promotion! So she's basically the head of the whole farm complex. But she's still shipping out kids. So it's just like, okay, okay, Isabella. So he's like, uh, okay, so moms, like, control your kids, please. And so they all have guns. And then they turn all their guns to onto Peter. Hey, I love how she's like, she addresses her kids as she points her guns towards Peter Rattery. And she's like, all of you did splendidly. Perfect scores for everyone. Like, oh, what a nice little, nice little throwback to the test that they did at the beginning. It was all the, nourishing their brains. It was all leading up to this. She trained these kids to do what she could not. But she still shipped out these kids. Yeah. And she addresses that with the moms where she approaches them and she's like, listen, the previous grandma got shipped out the second that she did something fucked. So this system isn't looking after us. We are just as expendable as all of these kids. The only thing that is guaranteeing our safety is our participation in this system. But the system can't function without all of us participating. And she's like, you know that this is fucked up, but you've had to tell yourself that it's fine just so that you can survive. She's like, this system relies on all of us being terrified to act out and do something differently. But now look at these Zoomers. They're doing it right. Yeah. And so they side with the kids and there's like this really great reunion between Emma and Phil. And it's just like, oh my God, let's go. Mm -hmm. Phil, best boy. They finally get reunited. Oh my gosh. It's so sweet. And honestly, it's a lot more satisfying watching this reunion happen when Phil is still just a little baby. Because again, in the anime, for some reason, they made him a teenager. And I was like, okay. But he just looks so cute. He's so cute. And oh my gosh. And what's also really nice is the reunion between Ray and Phil. Because Phil had to watch kids getting shipped out while he was there while he knew what was going on and that's what ray had to do for so many years so ray like pats him on the head and he's like it must have been tough sorry and thanks 
Like, he, they, they shared that struggle. Another thing I want to point out is how Lewis actually survives, again, by plot. This was all plot. This didn't make any sense. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so Lewis died at Goldie Pond. But guess what? He also has a second core. Even though it was stated that only one member of the family should have one core, which was the queen. Yeah, it's a very, very rare trait. And we also find out, yeah, that Lewis is also a sibling of the queen. So Sonju and Lewis were the younger brothers of the queen. Oh, yeah. And so they were like, oh, yeah, it's really rare for demons to have two cores. And the only known person that, or the only known demon to have one is the queen. And she's like, oh, no, Lewis actually has another core. And he survived. And he had no idea that he had a second core. So he truly thought he was dead. And how would his sister know that she has a second core? But he had no idea. Like, okay. And I like, okay. Ultimately, I like what they did with Lewis. Because he comes back and he's like, I've done a lot of soul searching. And this world needs to change. And I can't be a part of this change because I'm part of the old system. He says, I'm also guilty of looking the other way during the old administration's reign. So he acknowledges that the world can't get better with the same figures that participated in what made it so terrible before. And I think that's an important statement to make. But also, does he have to face consequences for anything? Like, that's what I'm saying. This guy just admitted he's a boomer and it's just like, okay, like, are you going to get punished? And it's just like, no, let's just appoint a zoomer who's technically a boomer, a.k.a. Musica, who's lived for like a thousand years as well. Let her be the new queen. And she's just like, excuse me, wait, what? And then it's like, okay, yeah, that I'm, it makes the most sense. Yes, it does. But also like she has to feed all these people like her blood. Like how sustainable is that? I don't know. I mean, demons can regenerate a lot. So I know. But like, what if they just hooked her up to like a blood machine? Okay, well, that's why she has to be queen, so that she can be like, hey, stop that. What if there's a coup? Okay, well, it's possible. And that's kind of the last thing that we see of the demon world. We just have to trust that they're going to work through their shit. She has no, she has nobody she can trust except for Sonju. Sonju is enough. I love their pond. They can't run a whole demon society with just them two. <sighs> Especially with all that chaos. Yeah, and like all these citizens are trash. They're just like, oh... Okay, yeah, Lewis makes sense. Lewis will be our leader. And then he's like, nah, let Musica be your leader. And then they're like, okay, yeah, Musica be our leader. Yay. I mean, yeah, they're all kind of confused. And that's what happens when you have a complete, you know, upheaval of things. They're, they don't really know what, what to do. But with Musica as the queen and with them going forward without having to eat humans, they don't have to worry about the main concern that drove their society before. So there will definitely still be conflict. There's going to be demons that want to eat humans. There will probably be demons that try looking for Ishwishwishwisha to forge a new promise again. But we just have to trust that at least for the problem that has been dictating them for the past thousand years, they now don't have to worry about it. They don't have to rely on humans anymore. And then eventually, they're going to become vegans. Oh, uh, they're still going to be animals to hunt. Animals are not vegetables, okay? What about the plants, bro? They can't even move. They have no defense. Okay, well, we're not going to keep going down this rabbit hole. Speaking of demons that still want to eat humans, there's like one demon at the farm. Just this random fucking demon at Gracefield. And he like stabs Isabella through the back, literally. I am angry about that. Again, plot. This is all plot. Makes no sense. 
I appreciate that as Isabella is dying, she says, I want to live. I want to live and atone for what I did to them. Like, yeah. So why not just let her live and atone? But like, can you let her live? Yes. How many kids has she shipped off? Okay, but yes, she she was participating in a system. It would require a lot of healing, but in a completely different context, if you just planted her in the right soil, I believe that she could blossom. She's already a grown woman. She doesn't need to bloom. She's already bloomed, okay? No, you know she's a MILF. She, she will continue to bloom. She's in her prime. I don't know, man. At this point, I was just like, fine. Isabella's dead. Okay. I was not happy about it. Because in the anime, she survives and she makes it to the human world. They don't have all this extra stuff here. But like, what is she going to do in the human world? Just set up another orphanage? <laughs> well, she, she can live with her children. Oh, my favorite moment is when she says to another mom who asks, what do we do now? Isabella says to her, now we can just love them. Like, oh, because that's what they wanted to do all along. Being a mom was the closest you could get to a normal life. You just had to, you know, have some severe blinders as you lived. But now they just get to love them. Oh, my heart. I don't think it would be the same. Like the epilogue would be the same if she lived. I don't know. I just, I don't like that she dies because I think that I'm pretty tired of the trope of the character who has done a lot of terrible things finally atoning by saving somebody in one grand gesture of goodness. Because the demon was trying to attack and eat Emma, but Isabella blocked her from that and saved her child and dies in the process. So she's not able to get the full Zuko level redemption arc, you know? And she deserves that. Even though, I mean, the manga is like almost done at this point. Yep. And that's what I'm saying. Where it gets typical shonen Where you get all these tropes. They just come from out of nowhere and you're like, okay, I get where this is. Trying to send a hopeful message. It's just lame. It is lame because so much of the message of this story is that everybody should live. And that's a difficult thing to premise a story based on because we had very limited deaths throughout the story. Did you just say we had very limited deaths? Yes. There have been countless, nameless, okay, hundreds, possibly thousands of children dead, demons dead, animals dead plants dead but like the the named characters only like less than 10 of them die i would say and that's a very small number wow so you're you're really attracted to names as well what you're saying. oh my gosh you just care about the names oh my gosh anyways we finally learn about the promise and the and the reward so was like okay the reward is well what i want is your family but i can't have that because the promise stipulates that you will have your family and then he's like he makes it seem like the the reward is or emma makes it seem when she explains it to her family that he said that you know what there is no reward because for the last 1000 years you've had everything taken from you so he said reparations you get off scot-free you can just go live your life with your family ta-ta but in fact she gets bamboozled well everybody gets bamboozled because emma was kind of lying about how there was no uh reward or no like sacrifice and we find out that when they go to the human world that emma is not with them nope all the kids land on random shores of the human world and emma is not in any of these groups yep and so we find out that the sacrifice that she had to make was her memory of her family yeah and so she doesn't remember anything that has happened 
in the past 180 chapters. Yeah, she just is living with this random old dude who lost a lot of his family or all of his family in the human wars. Um, and we learn that in the human world, there was so much conflict in around the years that we are currently living in, in the 2020s, you know? very topical oh my gosh and it's maybe a little on the nose but i like this bit they basically learn that in the human world people had to learn that only caring about yourself at the expense of others would no longer work in order to survive humanity as a whole needed to be safe mm -hmm. see the connections never gonna happen i know but let's just enjoy it national borders were abolished the world became one large nation they're still in the midst of reconstruction but they're doing better than they were before and that's what matters and they're in this world that is struggling to recover from its own conflict and emma has no memories of how she ended up in the snow by this random dude's house my question is if there were humans that knew about kids living in a different world why didn't they save them i i don't think they did know this guy knew the guy who who's like oh yeah look at these kids i found out about these kids who's he's part of the ratchery clan right right yeah so he was handling things in the ratchery fam family on the human side not the demon side i mean the promise was in place the promise before which basically governs the universe and the world it required cattle children to be there so the only way they were able to be welcomed to the human world was by changing the promise and they did okay but does that mean all there's no more kids in the demon world right they, they all of them escape all at once yeah the promise was that all cattle children get sent to the human world and that there's no more movement between the two worlds so they got reverse isekai into the human world <laughs> So they were like babies. They were like babies like in the crib or whatever. Yep. And then they just got reverse isekai. Yep. Who's taking care of them? They well they get taken care of. Like the I know, but like when like when they get right when they get isekai. I don't know. I mean Do you know what I mean? Like they just get transported and it's just I... like what's the what's the wait time before I get saved here? I mean I'm sure it was a messy process. Yeah, seems like it. Yeah, not not a smooth transition, but we basically skip forward about two years. Another time skip. Where the kids They've been looking for Emma the whole time. They're scouring the world. They're looking into all the cattle children that washed up on the shores of these different countries. Emma's nowhere to be found. And Emma is just living her regular life, trying to be okay with her situation. And then it takes a fucking destiny turn of events. I love destiny. I was like, okay, plot. Listen, de it's destiny, not plot. You know what? You know what would have been better if they didn't find her? No. <sighs> I would have liked that more. Because I would have been like, okay, this is over. Like, this is this is good. This is where it ends. Honestly, I'm shaky about the whole memory thing in the first place. I don't know how I feel about it. Because it didn't have any room to breathe. It was. It happened in the last three chapters. Exactly. Like, you find out about the thing. If, it, if you found out about it, like, right when she made the promise, you'd get, like, time to linger on it. And you'd be like, oh, my God, is this a worthwhile, worthwhile sacrifice? Emma, oh, my God, you're still going on, even though you know... Like, gonna see them again like what's the point then and it's like you're, you're gonna be like with her as she's thinking about it but like the fact that it was revealed at the end you're like okay so she's just okay with it i guess i'm okay with it and then these kids are not okay with it and then they have to spend the next two years of their life trying to find her and it's just like is that even worth it they never would have given up they're they're not even living they never would have given up if they didn't find her they're not living the life that she gave them I don't know. I like the idea of them starting over as much as I can within the caveat that I don't love that her memories disappeared. I know, but that defeats the purpose. 
but I do love how they find her. There's this line where they say, we'll even overturn destiny because they weren't supposed... No, I love it. I love it. I love it so much. That's so lame. No. That's so lame because that's two years, bro. She sacrificed all of this. And then for them to be like, nah, Emma, we're going to find you. It's just like, I sacrificed all of this for you guys to live a good life. And you're going to spend the next two years looking for me. I don't even want to be found. I don't even know you exist. But again, this story is about how community is more important than self-sacrifice. Emma agreed to the terms of that contract and didn't even know that she made that sacrifice. And then her family found her because what? Because Ohana meets family. She's going against everything that she believes in. Yes. And that's the sad irony of it. And again, that's why I don't know how much I agree with this whole memory thing. I don't know how I feel about it because it feels a little counterintuitive to the whole thing because she was she was basically threatening people. She was like, don't even dare think about sacrificing yourself. We're supposed to live together as a family. And then at the end, she's just like, well, if this is the only way for everybody else to be happy, then I guess. And I mean, her hands were tied. There was not much she could do. She literally pulled a Norman and then she like called him out for it. And remember, Ray tried sacrificing himself too. There were many times where Ray didn't intend to survive. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just like, who's what's this character? This is serving the plot more than character consistency. But you know what? As much as I am so ambivalent about this memory erasing ending, I love the moment where Ray and the kids almost pass by her in the town that she's living in. And then the spirits of Isabella and Hugo call out to Ray and they're like, over here. Oh my god, no. Do you notice there's there's Connie here too? <gasps> oh my god, yes. I just noticed that. Yes. This is a good but, screenshot. Wow. Yeah. And he's just like, what? Come on. That was good. Mm -hmm. No, that was good. I admit. But it's still cheesy. I was like, oh my god, yes, I want to see these characters. They were good characters. I think I'm more willing to accept cheesy than you. No, like I, I love fairy tale. Let's not talk about cheesy. Okay, okay. Fairy tale is like one of the worst anime you can watch. But it has the best heartfelt friendship is magic tropes. And you know what? I cry every single time. Wow. Okay. Because I believe it. I believe in fairy tale. Okay, guys, for all you listening, fairy tale is amazing. I love friendship is magic. My friends are my power. That's the good shit. And I love destiny. And I love friends destined to be together. And I love, again, I mentioned that I love that it's confirmed early on with Hugo and Lucas crossing over to the other side and meeting with their friends again. This world has a spiritual aspect to it. It has a spiritual realm. And then that spiritual realm guides the friends to be together again in real life. Even though Emma's like, I don't remember any of you and she's a little freaked out. She still felt deep in her soul like she was waiting for them. And you know she's gonna love them just like she did before. Yeah, so my question is, is she gonna leave the old guy or is she gonna take him... <laughs> with them because they're like emma come live with us and she's just like i don't even know you but okay yeah i guess fuck the past two years with her father yeah that's what i'm saying like is the dad gonna be like can you take me with you like i have no family here as much as i uh, there are things that i love about this ending and there are things that i really don't get and i'm just trying to like weigh them out equally because i like them i thought this ending was rushed that's fair but i found it acceptable but also, a lot of people didn't like it. Yeah. And I was like, I get it. Yeah. There's a lot of tonal shifts. There's a lot of like, is this really happening right now? Yeah. And I mean, this story is only really a suspense thriller. 
for the first season. And after that, it changes into more of an adventure type story. And then, you know, it goes all woo 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 with friendship is magic. And if you're going into it with the expectation that everything is going to be like season one, you're, you're going to be a bit disappointed. Yeah, the theme of friendship is magic is actually, if you think about it, present throughout, even in the thriller suspense part of the first arc. It's just like, oh, this is a thriller suspense. I'm going to focus on this instead of the friendship is magic mm. aspect of it. That's fair. But that actually is a through line and it just morphs into different genres, like the adventure genre you talked about. Yeah. And it's harder to keep up the suspense thriller aspect of it because like in any more horror-y genre, when you unmask the villain or you unmask the the specter that's haunting the main characters, a lot of the time it becomes less scary. And I mean, the first demons that we meet face to face really are Musica and Sonju. And then it's like, oh, the demons aren't scary anymore. It's more complex. And then it becomes this whole thing about the politics of this world. And if you weren't signing up for that, I mean, you can't know that that's what you're signing up for when you start the series because it's so isolated in the first season. Yeah. So basically to summarize our thoughts on The Promised Neverland, I thought Isabella was like the best antagonist because of the first arc. It was like suspense thriller, mind games. It wasn't just about fighting or like talking through your problems like Emma does in the later chapters. It's about outsmarting, outmaneuvering, outwitting the opponent while not letting on that you're trying to outsmart them. And in general, I thought the plot was like it starts strong and it gives like a showcase of like ominous vibes. And the, again, the reveal is amazing where you find out that they're just food for the demons. Um, I thought the world building was cool, but just mainly for the plot. I feel like like it just said a lot of stuff rather than showing like a lot of the world. Uh, I thought the art style was pretty good. Demons were the best part. Yeah, though I will say I was pretty satisfied with the fact that there's such a large cast. And even though the characters don't get individually fleshed out personality wise, you never have trouble telling the characters apart. So kudos to the artist for being able to pull that off because there is a really big cast of characters and there are some really cool designs that come in. But yeah, I, of course, love the thriller aspect of the first season. And for me, I loved seeing the way that the emotional and political messages of the story played out. Because at the end of the day, Emma's outlook on things really aligns with mine. Saving yourself is one thing, but being able to tear down the systems that require you needing to escape and save yourself in the first place that's so noble and that's the only way that this world gets better and it was just really nice seeing some really smart kids overcoming all of the odds and literally creating a better world for themselves and this message isn't really hidden in the story at all sometimes it gets pretty obvious Maybe so I can imagine people saying that it goes borderline didactic at sometimes, and I'm fine with that, with that interpretation. I can't argue against that. But overall, I found it really, really enjoyable. Are you saying you're the Steve Jobs of this operation? You're just a visionary? I honestly, if I'm anything, then yeah. I don't know how to do a lot of things, but I can think a lot of things and... I don't know, and imagine a lot of things. Like, I appreciated how Emma was always looking forward to a world that didn't exist yet. And I, I spend a lot of time doing that. Like, when things are really heavy, I'm just like, how's humanity going to be in a hundred years? Better? Hopefully better. I'm going to tell myself that it's going to be better, and then just try to manifest that into existence. 
So Emma is my girl. Like at the end of all of this, Klaus, who is your favorite character? Phil, let's go. Okay. Phil, best boy. He's hardly even there. That's the sad part. The times he was there, loved it. It's true. I know I've been talking about Ray a lot, but... Ray was a cool character in the first arc. And then he starts softening up. And I'm just like, okay, you're a side character now. Yeah, it's true. Emma just does it for me. I align with her. I relate to her. I would, I mean, I mean, she likes kids a lot. I mean, obviously they're her siblings, but like, the, okay. Because at the beginning I was like, fuck them kids, leave them all behind. They obviously can't survive in the world. But then I found myself being taken in by her softness and her hope and the strength that comes with that and i was like man you won me over and she did not win me over in the anime but she won me over in the manga so you're saying you only like 2d characters you only like panels you don't like animation sure that's fine i don't need 3d people i don't even need moving 2d people just pictures just pictures and names huh yep that's pretty boomer of you so Okay, with the caveat that the first season or the first arc, the escape arc is the best, what is your other favorite arc? Because the story goes in so many different directions. I would say Goldie Pond is next because, again, there was like a lot of like suspense, a lot of outsmarting the, uh, the opponents where it's just not about, oh, I'm going to punch you the strongest and then I'm going to win. It's like, how do I outsmart them? How do we make plans to overcome this like insurmountable obstacle? Mm -hmm. Yes, I can see why you like Goldie Pond a lot. And honestly, I was shook the whole time that I was reading Goldie Pond because I just kept thinking, I can't believe that we were robbed of this in the anime because it's so fresh and so fun. Um, but I think I have to go with Seven Walls personally. Just watching Emma and Ray go through this weird, impossible time space, freaky deaky dimension. It feels like it was catered personally to me. It made so much of the art of the Promised Neverland click because a lot of the a lot of the cover art and the colored art that you see for the series is so like wonky and it feels all mazy and puzzly and I just thought that was a cool preference of the of the artist but the Seven Walls arc made me go oh my gosh I feel like all of this shifty mind bendy imagery of the series has been leading up to this to the Seven Walls and that felt really rewarding. Yeah, the Seven Walls arc was really good. If it was longer, maybe it would have been my second. Yeah, I wish that it was longer. Because that reveal was pretty cool. Where they're like, oh, the Seven Walls is actually a cube. So a cube has six six faces. Those are the six walls. And then time is the seven. So what is the seven? So what are the seven walls? It's literally space-time. And it's just like, you have to, how do you manipulate space-time? With your mind. I forgot why it was called the seven walls. I'm just sitting here shooketh all over again. Yeah. It's a, what's it called? It's a tesseract or it's a hypercube. So fucking cool. Love it. Love it so much. Um, okay. Now we, I think it's safe to say that we both have some, some gripes and critiques about the series. If you could choose one thing for the series to do differently, what would it be? Get more Phil, bro. I knew you were going to say that. I wanted Phil to have a larger role. Like, how do you just leave this kid behind? I know he's four, but also, like, he's the one that figured out the Morse code. He could have been helpful. Like, you couldn't have taken him with you. I'm so sorry. Like, I know he, like, he, like, he held down the, the fort. He knew that Isabel was, like, the villain. Well, he makes it to the end, so that's good. I don't know what I would change in particular because... I don't feel satisfied with the memory loss ending and the way that that wrapped up, but I don't know what I would suggest to replace it or to do it better. You have no other gripes about the 
rest of the series. Oh, I guess in general, I would have liked to see more moments of levity between the kids. We get a few of those, but not enough to make me like really feel for the kids on like an individual level. The kids to me just get paired off into little groupings. Like there's the three main kids, and then there's the five main kids with Gilda and Don, and then there's the Gracefield kids, and then there's the four and under Gracefield kids. Like they all get sectored off, and they all are important to me in the sense that like the more kids get saved, the the happier I am because I'm like this is what they're going for. But amongst all this, there's just not a lot of space to individually get into the minds of all of these kids. And I mean, that's just a structural thing that would be really hard to fix because you kind of you don't have time to get into that many characters individually. But that is something that I wished for. Just more sweet moments. Yeah, I agree. Like throughout reading it, to me, it didn't feel like these characters were kids because there was like no natural interaction with them. Like you said, like moments of levity where you see their childish personalities like show. Right. They're usually just like so serious and like so adult. Yeah. And like they're just so smart and it's just like, okay, but these people don't feel like kids. Like if they were like 18, I feel like there would have been no difference in how they would act because like they were so mature for their age. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, these kids felt, like, so mature. Like, again, given the circumstances, it makes sense. Like, you don't want, like, a 10-year-old to be crying all the time. Like, they're not going to survive. But also, like, you don't have to make them cry all the time. You can just be, like, have them fun or, like, I don't know, like, interact naturally with each other. Yeah, exactly. We get a little bit of that, but not as much as it would take to really have it hammered in that these are kids. They don't act like kids. And honestly, writing kids is very hard, I find, so I get it. Yeah, the kids don't really get to be individuals. And again, like you said, it makes sense that they're more mature because the circumstances that they're in and it's seen as a good thing and almost a necessary thing that they can handle all of this. And I think that another thing that is beautiful to me about this story is the theme of preserving innocence and being able to live a regular life. Everybody who is caught up in this story is prevented from having a regular peaceful life with their families and with their loved ones. Even Peter Rattree didn't get to really enjoy time with his brother. They were turned against each other. And then Isabella had to sh- ship her kids off all the time, so she had to be at an emotional distance with him. Same with all of the moms. This world isn't built for people to have the childhoods that they're supposed to have, the livelihoods that they're supposed to have, the kind of happy, healthy brain development that you're supposed to have. And I am very happy that so many of them, that they all make it to the human world, except the many, many that died, I know. Because that's what this new promise does for them. It restores this more childish part of them that they were not able to have. Yeah, but now they have to go to school. (laughs) And they have to, like, live in the real world. They have to live in a society. I mean, and that's also not great, but it's something. It's It's better. better. And um, I also wanted to quickly mention, I really like how there are a few scenes throughout the story where Emma looks at people, at, at the adults, and sees them as the scared child inside of them. She does that with Norman when she sees him uh, trying to enact his genocide plan. She does that with Isabella when she sees her like pointing their guns at them and and then turning on them for Rattree. And she also imagines Peter Rattree as a kid who she might have grown up with on the farm if they had just lived different lives. Emma has this way of seeing the hurt child inside of everybody. The child in pain who had to deal with their circumstances and harden themselves on the outside. And she's like, I want to bring that side of you back because that's who you are and that's who you should be able to be on this earth. But also, like, Peter Rattree was trash. He was. 
his brother was just like, I don't like the system. And I'm going to try to save these kids. And then Peter was just like, nah, bro, we're going to keep the system. I'm going to rat you out. I'm going to be the head of this family. And I was just like, why? You could just plan with your brother and just like tear this whole thing down. Your family's cursed because you have to like be the mediator of this contract. And like, you're literally sacrificing all these kids that you don't have to. And he chose to sacrifice all these kids. Yep. And then every time he started thinking that what the kids were saying was right, that he started being faced with the wrongness of his actions, he literally just goes, no. And isn't that just an accurate depiction of what goes on in people's heads when you challenge a worldview that they hold dear to them? That is very problematic. He's a typical CEO. Yep. It's a CEO mindset. It is. It really is. And he was like, I would rather slit my own throat than be a fucking normie. Again, CEO mindset. Also, there's another thing I'd like to bring up that I completely forgot about, mm -hmm. which was Adam. Do you remember Adam? Oh, yeah. He's the Lambda experiment, dude. Yeah. And he was like, he was fighting with Lewis and then Lewis like punched him and then Adam was like completely fine. I was like, well, big tank. Like, all right, let's go, bro. And then at the end where Norman's group of people from Lambda, they started having like seizures or whatever. And they were like, there's no cure for this. And then Adam's back at the shelter. Why is Adam at the shelter? And then they're like, the cure is Adam. And I was just like, okay, are you going to do something with this? Yeah, and they, they do. They mention it really briefly at the end that they're like, I guess, uh, ethically experimenting on Adam. Yeah, and it's just like, what's the point of having these people like with a deadly disease only to bring up Adam as the cure? And it's just like, I didn't care about that, you know? That's true. The stakes of like, because there's a scene where Norman like coughs on his hand and blood comes out. But then like, it just gets solved. There, there aren't really any stakes there. There's no danger there. Like if it was actually like, oh, there was no cure. I'd be like, oh my God, Norman, like, I see why you're willing to sacrifice yourself. I see why. And Norman is like, I only have so much time to get this plan in motion. And he doesn't believe in Emma's way of going about things. He thinks that she's kind and wonderful and he wants her to survive. But he also doesn't believe that her vision for things is going to work out. So he's like, I need to use the time that I have to make things happen for the people I love. And like, how did Adam escape Lambda? Was that when Norman escaped? They all, yeah, they all escaped. So like Adam didn't go with Norman. Yeah. Or like Norman was just like, Adam, you can, we don't want you, Adam. Oh, wait, I guess Adam just ended up at Goldie Pond. Like how? Because he knew Norman at Lambda because he was like saying his number. Yeah. And like when I was reading that, I was like, oh, my God, is that Norman? Like, wow, he could really got like experimented with. But then it was like, oh, a different character. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. They really. Uh... There's some loose plot points. Yes. Yeah. There are some loose threads here. All right. We have talked about The Promised Neverland. We did a deep dive into our feelings about it. And now it's time to ask the ultimate question. But is it an S tier? No. No, it's no, not. No, it's not, bro. So, okay. Where does this rank on your tier list? Three, two, one. B tier. B -tier. Yay! Oh my god, really? I thought you'd place it higher. You, like, loved no, this series. No. You loved it so much. I may... I, I do love it, but it has too many structural flaws. That's what I've been saying. Yeah, I think in a previous tier list that I made, it may have been A tier, but that was only based off of season one when I ranked it. So, The Promised Neverland, our first series that we are ranking on, but is it an S tier anime podcast? It ranks B. That's a fair place to start. Yeah, it's an average show. 
So if you haven't heard of the series or don't know anything about it, watch the first episode. If you like it, continue. If you like the first season or up until chapter 37, let us know what you think. Let us know if you finished it or if you like stopped halfway through. I'll understand if you don't finish it. At least make it to Goldie Pond. Yeah, so that's about like chapter 100. If you don't like anything after chapter 100, I get it. You don't have to finish. But I will say the series that we're talking about on our next episode, it's a good one. Too many spoilers. That's too much. Okay. All right. Well, we'll end it there. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Biased Podcast. Yeah. So if you guys uh, disagree or agree with anything that we said, let us know your thoughts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at BiasedPod. Yeah. And if you disagree, we never said we weren't biased.